You know why those unicorn leggings were so popular? Because they were uncommon. I'll be at Holy, but lucky for you, you can be the best gift giver ever this year and give people truly unique and thoughtful gifts with uncommon goods. They literally have something for everyone, mom, dad, teenagers, in-laws. Their gifts are original and creative, and they show that you put thought into how much you really know somebody by their specificity. I bought a lot of their gifts that are for like wine lovers because they have really unique gifts for people that like different types of alcohol. I got my husband an in-home escape room one year. Uh, I got this scratched off world map so I could scratch off everywhere I had traveled only to realize I had mostly only been to Western Europe. And it was awesome that it was already artwork, but uh, you know, who knew I'd get the double feature of it also being a real look in the mirror. I love gifting friends with daughters. Like, you know, there are games and puzzles and books and everything featuring prominent female figures in history. If, you know, you're feeling like somebody knows education is little founding father forward. There's tiny knit hats to put on a banana so they don't go bad as quickly. Anyway. No matter what they're into, Uncommon Goods has the perfect gift from art to jewelry to kitchen, home, and bar. Something for everyone. I'm personally going to try to be there three months early and get ahead on my holiday shopping because they work with a lot of artisans and smaller batch goods that do run out. And uh, I am eyeballing a table that you make out of empty wine bottles. And with every purchase you make at Uncommon Goods, they give back a dollar to a nonprofit partner of your choice. And they donated, donated more than two and a half million dollars to date. To get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com slash be there in five. That's uncommongoods.com slash be there in five for 15% off. Don't miss out on this limited time offer. Uncommon Goods, we're all out of the ordinary. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Be There in Five podcast. I'm Kate Kennedy, your host. Welcome back to, I can't believe it's not buttery part two. I had so many technical difficulties last week, uh, so thank you for your patience. I, I uploaded it with two different episode titles because I had two different versions, and then I went back and re-recorded the piece about the cargo to explain it a little bit more succinctly and concisely because I discovered the cargo ship data pretty late in the game toward the deadline. <laughs> And when, sometimes when I'm talking as I'm researching, I'm like, no, this is nonsensical. So you might have heard two different versions of the episode, but I'm just grateful you're here and have stuck around. We have Amanda Montel, author of Cultish, on to talk more about Lula Rich in the cultish sense. Uh, and on these episodes, I typically, you know, do my own intro and then get into the interview uh, after, I don't know, 20 minutes or so. We'll see. I have a couple stories to tell today. I feel like I had an exciting week. I should have seen it, uh, you know, going going off the chain, off the supply chain after I spent all that time researching cargo data. I will say I'm kind of upset because um, the website I was using to look through all of that blocked my IP address. <laughs> I haven't been able to get on it since. <laughs> I think they must have been like, surely no normal human person would spend this much time researching cargo ocean bills of lading on a Saturday night. So this must be a bot and it must be mining our site. There was some error message that said, like, we block IP addresses that uh, could be, I don't know, I think they are trying to prevent people from create, creating competitive sites or something. I was like, oh, man, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to create a competitive site. Like, I, I'm just a gal standing in front of an, a bunch of import data trying to have a fun Saturday night. And here I am left out at sea. My IP address blocked. I don't know. How do you even combat that? Is that a VPN situation? Like, would a normal person like me that's not in a corporate job? Have, I don't know. I, I don't know. This is a small operation. I Most days I'm not even bothered by VPL, much less can I F with VPN. But, you know, hopefully someday I'll get my access reinstated because I was I was honestly excited for the new hobby. But as I found out, you know, 
what, 25 years ago? Uh, cargo was not my fate as it related to pants, nor, I suppose, hobbies. Uh, cargo pants were a time. That had nothing to do with boating. I think that was more of like a military-inspired pant. I wore cargo pants on the first day of seventh grade, and I felt, I felt like a smoke show with the extra storage. I actually... <laughs> I distinctly remember... Uh, like wearing those cargo pants. I was also wearing a a sweater vest that had the Oxford white collared shirt like sewn into it. So it, I can't remember, if you wear a t-shirt under a sweater vest, you look like Doug Funny. Um, but I wanted to really represent the couture of what I assume was the brand Faded Glory from Walmart. Um, and anyway, I showed, on the first day of school, I went to the school store and I bought Tic Tacs and Milky Pens. Did you guys, did your public schools have school stores? I could talk about school store culture all day. No, I couldn't. Really, all that, all, <laughs> all that it was is uh, using your lunch money to buy Milky Pens or gel pens and orange Tic Tacs or Mentos. And then uh, scrounging for food and eating friends scraps uh, when lunch rolled around because you spent your lunch money on pens that predominantly only write on black paper. Uh, I loved Milky Pants, my God. If you were lucky, you know, develop a small collection, uh, a baby blue, a baby pink, um, an F with a seafoam, and then you would try to use them. Then the teacher would be like, hi, you can't uh, write on white paper in a ballet slipper pink colored pen. Uh, this does not count. So it, it would only work if you had black paper or if that's why people started, I don't know, in your middle school, people would write on their hands like their name or their crush's name. I don't know. We got into hand art for a minute. I'm, I think it's because we spent so much on milky pens and didn't have a canvas. Anyway, why did I bring up milky pens? Oh, because I, yeah, I, <laughs> the, I think the first day of seventh grade or something, I was wearing a cargo pant and I, um, bought a milky pen and, uh, orange Tic Tacs and I stuck them in the cargo pocket. And I remember thinking, I like that I have a signature sound when I walk. I really felt like it gave me a, some gravitas uh, in the hallways at Bird Middle. And uh, I remember when I first saw Devil Wears Prada and the Clackers would take their stilettos to the marble floors at, you know, Elias Clark Publishing. I thought, eh, been there, done that. <laughs> the Clackers for nothing on the Tic Tackers. Um, what else has happened in the past four days? I mean, not much. It's just Emily Mariko's leftover salmon recipes world, and we're all just living in it. The, the news cycle is so fast. The TikTok trend cycle is so fast. And there's this content creator named Emily Mariko. She's been a YouTuber for a while, but got big on TikTok literally this past week. And I don't know. She's just one of those people that she's she's so incredibly clean and tidy. And she cooks for herself every day. And she takes really good care of herself. Like she cooks herself real food from like plants and plants. <laughs> vegetables and fruit and she eats carbs which I appreciate and I don't know it's just this person on TikTok it's not aspiration and a sense of like overt affluence or or conspicuous consumption or you know bright lights big city out on the town it's like her in her house in her fairly simple kitchen and she's just so clean and tidy and she makes herself full meals for like breakfast lunch and dinner but it's like her using actual ingredients from her fridge and making things from scratch like all the time and making it not seem like a big deal she cleans out her entire fridge every week saturday night she shows you what it looks like sunday morning 
deep cleaned and she goes to a farmer's market and picks out a cornucopia of fresh produce. Literally the things that look like they are inside a cornucopia. And I usually use that term metaphorically. And then she uses the food she buys. <laughs> I'm like amazed. Uh, and she's like, yeah, I picked up some bok choy. I'll throw it in a soup. I'll do da, da, da. Like, oh, I, I, you know, there were turnips and they're in season. And I'm like, how do people know when things are in season? Is that something I should know as a person? <laughs> I just, I don't know. I, I want to be a person who's that clean and who isn't cluttered. And she just seems like a person that I'd sit next to in class and she'd be really nice and I'd want to be her friend and she would... Uh, you know, smell like Bath and Body Works, uh, cherry blossom or sweet pea. And uh, I would try to talk to her, but she would kind of cover up her paper because I seemed like somebody who might copy off of her. But alas, here I am wanting to copy off of her. But like, do you guys just have spare salmon lying around? This is confusing to me because everybody is making her salmon recipe where she eats salmon the night before. And then for lunch the next day, she chops it up, puts um, like QP mayo on it uh, and some sriracha and then she heats it up with rice. And she makes it a rice maker. And then she puts an ice cube in it. The ice cube's the key to steaming. And then she puts a singular sheet of parchment paper over it. And she heats it up. And then she mixes it together. And then she gets a sheet of seaweed and eats it with a chopstick. And it looks delectable. Everyone I know is making it. And I just, I guess I'm impressed that people, it's funny because she eats it because it's left over because she had salmon the night before. But everyone else is just like, mincing salmon <laughs> to eat it as a primary meal but also I never buy salmon and should I buy salmon I don't anyway that's not why we're here just wanted to get caught up on the week's events um <laughs> so this second part so I actually recorded this before the other episode so I apologize if any of it's redundant uh because we kind of had to set the stage and talk through some basic concepts that I probably talked through before but uh, the point isn't to hear me reinforce something. It's I want you to hear somebody else's opinion. So, you know, sorry if we talk through some of the same basics, but uh, I wanted to have Amanda Montel on the podcast, who I told you about last week. She's the author of Cultish, The Language of Fanaticism. She's a linguist, author, talented writer. And um, her book is about how many things have culty language. They're cultish. They are not necessarily cults. But a lot of organizations and groups and, you know, communities with a shared interest exhibit similar behaviors and communication patterns uh, that like, kind of like foster the same level of loyalty of an actual cult. Because the and, and I think it's important to talk about because in the instance of LuLaRoe or, you know, when I was talking about Nexium, I, I just am fascinated anytime I read about a situation where People just join something out of their own genuine interest with good intentions uh, because it doesn't seem nefarious. Nexium, they just thought it was like self-improvement. Um, you know, nobody joins a cult. Nobody joins a pyramid scheme. Everybody joins thinking that it's something it's not and they're convinced and coerced into being a part of it and made to feel like they belong and until they're in too deep once they realize it's not what it seems. And I think that the behaviors and communication patterns that are used to kind of lure people in, there's subtleties in what makes them a problem and what makes them like totally standard amongst a group of people that all love the same thing. And I wanted to talk to Amanda kind of about uh, how she categorizes uh, the three main identifiers of a cult, con conversion, conditioning, and coercion, and talk about LuLaRoe in this context talk about um, the way that 
organizations like LuLaRoe with kind of religious undertones will often speak to women in a very manipulative way. I wanted to kind of ask her, yeah, what are the what are the main identifiers? Like, how can people not get them find themselves in a slippery, buttery rather slope? Uh, like, why did Mark and Dean have so much power over people? How do you distinguish well-meaning from manipulative? And I don't know. It, it, it's, it was really fun to talk to her and hope this is helpful, educational, interesting. The one thing she says later that really stuck out to me that I've been thinking about a lot is that um, language doesn't reflect reality. It creates reality. And as a person who speaks for a living, I'm like, damn, that's some stuff. And that's really when you think about the way MLMs wrote people in, it's about it's not about the content. It's about the, how they, the contextual, contextualizing of it. It's about reframing. It's about, you know, saying things like you have a victim mentality, turning things back on you, making it your fault. They're manufacturing your reality and reinforcing it at such a level. It becomes your concept of reality. And I think there's just so there's a lot about the MLM piece and communication and language that fascinates me. And I just think she provides really great insight. And oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. I promise I'll tell this quickly. But it kind of it was I found myself in a collision of uh, common themes with the way you say something matters and with kind of faux female empowerment and branding. Um, long story short, I've was tr I hired somebody to help me like clean out in my closet and get rid of like a lot of stuff because a lot of stuff doesn't fit me anymore. And um, if you listen to the podcast, you know that in the summer I had an topic pregnancy and something that's kind of unique about that circumstance is uh, even though it has to be resolved like immediately when you find it because it can be very life-threatening to the mother, um, it's the way that they treated in my circumstance was that even though it's six weeks, technically it, I, you know, miscarried it, you're not, you're trying to get unpregnant as long as you are pregnant and you, your hormone level slowly drops. You technically have pregnancy hormones for about 10 to 12 weeks, even though I knew I wasn't going to be pregnant after six. So my body like really changed this past summer. And I was trying to just like, instead of move on from this, I was just trying to like move forward with it as we've talked about. And I'm like, let me just buy new stuff. And I got myself all pumped up. Uh, and I, and then about like a half hour, somebody was coming to go through my closet and I needed a bra because I didn't have one that fit. <laughs> and so I go to the store and um, it was just a really interesting experience. And all of this happened in maybe three to five minutes. It was incredibly abrupt. And please know I don't say this in terms of like uh, me feeling uh, sorry for myself in a size exclusivity sense. I know this happens to everyone everywhere and it's such a deeper problem. But I mean, like I'm telling this story from a, a language standpoint, uh, because when I got there, she asked me my size and I said my last known size. And it was like this most beautiful, like, you know, it was very millennial pink and a lot of quotes with empowerment. And it was very like aesthetically pleasing, very uh, yoga babe meets brunching athleisure. And I don't know. I was like, I got myself really pumped because it kind of took me a while to get to this place. And then I get there, I tell her my last known size. And she does inform me that my last known size is like almost maxing out at like what they carry. And I was like, okay, that doesn't seem right. Cause I would consider my bus size like a little above average. Uh, when you look up like average women's bus sizing um, and then the hormones and whatever happened this summer, like definitely made them uh, swell quite a bit. And it wasn't about like, I don't, it didn't care if I needed a bigger size. I just needed something comfortable. I needed something that fit. And um, so 
she brings me a bra and I try it on and, you know, they kind of like barge in the dressing room and then proceed to tell you things you already know. Like, yes, ma'am, I know my cups runneth over. That's why I'm here. She was like, oh, that does not fit. Like, yeah. Uh, and I was like, I know I can obviously see that. And I was like, well, do you have anything else? And she proceeds to say, you've sized out at the store. And I was like, <clears throat> well, I've sized out of everything I own. This is not helpful. And since I said my last known size earlier, I think she, like in saying that she was implying that something I did made me size out of the ideal person they want their brand, you know, to fit into their brand and not that it was a shortcoming of their offerings that they didn't um, have my size. And I had a really bad reaction because, again, it wasn't about the size. It was about the confusion you feel when uh you're uncomfortable with your body and the changes represent something you lost and you didn't reap a benefit from it. Right. And so I start crying and laughing because I was, it was so, it was literally like, Oh, we only carry sizes one, three and five. You could try Sears. It, it, it was so cold and abrupt and she didn't even try, like didn't even try to, they, they had a bunch of like stuff without underwires that could have worked. Blah, blah, blah. So I'm kind of crying and laughing uh, behind my mask and under my hat. And, uh, she, I was like, I just need, I need something. Can you give me your biggest bra without an underwire and I'll take it. And also, I also start kind of apologizing because I didn't want her to feel bad because I was reacting so strongly and she probably didn't understand why. I was kind of laughing. The signs on the walls were like, slay girl, slay. And here I am just like profusely apologizing and where can I pay? Like it was after somebody insults me, uh, I just, they, I need to get rid of the instinct to make a person feel comfortable in a conversation, even though I'm the one that has every right to feel uncomfortable. Uh, so I buy this bra um, and I'm like crying and laughing and just, it's, it's just kind of awkward and very silent. And I don't know why I'm choosing to, you know, buy things off their racks when they can't even support mine, but whatever, I just needed something. And it just was a, it just was a funny exchange in retrospect because she brings me out a tray of look like artfully placed LaCroix on, and there are paper straws and it's just not the time for seltzers. Like, do you really want me to sit on your millennial pink couch, you know, drinking a beverage that to me, just honestly, no offense to LaCroix lovers. It just tastes like the ice melted in the bottom of a better drink. All the while the carbonation, uh, you know, corrodes my paper straw, leaving my drinking vessels wilted as my spirits? Like, no, thank you. I don't want to sit here and explain to you that at a bra shop, there's a variety of reasons women might come in here that it's not fun for everyone. It's not just about tiny bralettes you want to wear for a fit, like fashion statement piece. Like people are coming here that are, you know, pregnant or, or breastfeeding. Maybe they're doing IVF shots. Maybe they haven't worn a bra since post-COVID and they're trying to find something for their new body. I mean, women's breasts are topic of like sensitivity that represents so much more than just aesthetics and fashion. And I, did, I was like, do you want me to explain to you why that was a little bit bizarre the way you spoke to me? And the reason I bring up, and I didn't, because, you know, it's not her, she didn't create the company policy. And I probably just would have made a joke about, you know, how she couldn't do anything for my cans. So she brought me out some of hers. And, I, you know, I was really focused on the seltzers. I'm always focused on the beverages. Um, and I bring that up with the language piece because it like set me off for some reason um, because through what she said, she implied something about like what I had done or and she reminded me of what I already knew 
to be true in terms of, yes, like my size has changed. I've, why do you think I'm here? I've sized out of what I own. And now this is my only option for today. And you're choosing to, that's your, the chosen verbiage. And at first I couldn't figure out why that bothered me so much, but I was telling you guys on Instagram, um, and so many of you reached out and were like, she should have said they don't care your size. It should have been about what they're not providing, not that you're falling short of their ideal aesthetic. And I was like, you're right. Like that was really, that was messed up and insensitive. And, um, well, I don't need everybody to be like, she didn't, she didn't know better. Like I didn't tell her in advance. She did know that I was there cause I, you know, sized out of something already, but I, I, I don't know. It's, it's one of those things where I had a really weird reaction and I couldn't quite figure out why at first. And I think it has to do with the way she chose to position that talk to me and make me feel like if I would needed help, I just had to leave. And then that paired with this thing we talk about all the time, which is the marketing of empowering and supporting women and how vacant it is relative to what's actually being done. There I was, a woman in an incredibly vulnerable situation, in a store telling me to slay, to love myself. Like some, there's, there's stuff about being sexy, having a boss brain. Uh, and Amanda and I talk about these like empty uh, branding slogans and ways people pander to people that have nothing to do with the product itself. But this was very clearly designed to make you feel sexy, beautiful, powerful, and that like we're in the business, like by women for women. Um, and there was something funny to me about being a woman in there and there are two women in there. And I was going through a very real situation women go through that we can uniquely understand about each other, desperately needing support from another woman about something real but feeling incredibly isolated and rejected while I'm surrounded by overt women supporting women branding. And it was just another reminder to me just of the exploitative nature of claiming to want people to feel uh, strong and sexy and, and powerful, successful in the name of capitalism. But at the end of the day, just like everything else, the intention is not to support women at all. It's a, to support a select group of women who meet the aesthetic standard of who they want representing their brand. And for everyone else, like it's not that our offerings are limited. It's not that we've fallen short of representing the type of women that walk through here every day. It's that you've sized out. Come back when you've sized in. I mean, it's troubling on so many levels. And I, and I know people deal with this all the time. And I think in the context of to kind of trying to explain to them why I was having trouble with my boobs because of my miscarriage and just like, you know, not that, again, they don't need to care about me personally, but it just... I think it would be important for people in a bra shop to understand that it's just, it's not just about fashion. And I just felt so weird uh, being in this women forward place, experiencing a real women's issue and being turned away. And honestly, what probably happened is they just felt awkward and I was barely making words and they didn't know what to do. Um, but again, I'm horrified, not because it, I take it personally for my own size, Rather, they are probably turning down over 50% of the women that walk through those doors. In, in a startup context, it's, in, it's inexcusable anymore to be prioritizing tiny boobs and tiny triangle bralettes for, you know, and, and it, this is nothing against people with a smaller chest. I just mean when your core competency is bras, you would assume you would develop a company that looks at the, you know, cross-section of of women in the place you're in and develops a size range that will be inclusive to them. And I know based on my own size that it is 
even if it looks inclusive, cup sizes are a total mess. Vanity sizing is a total mess. And I know that that is happening to a ton of women walking through those doors. It shouldn't happen, period. But uh, I just, I don't know, you guys. It was, a, it was a real brawl let down, if you will. And I can't even get into vanity sizing right now. But it just, yeah, it enrages me that we have, like, a, we have the ability to use numbers, like a, a fixed n- numeric system that represents things we know measure things like, I don't know, inches. And then you can get jeans that are, you know, a 28 inch waist and those inches are not inches at all. And they can be, how does that even, that doesn't even, even make sense. Can you imagine if, if we did that with another unit of measure, if cartographers decided to pull a fast one on us to manipulate us to where we, where we should be going? Like, well, okay. The drive from Santa Fe to Albuquerque, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not that long and people might not be inspired to visit Albuquerque because it doesn't seem like a far enough away destination. I don't know. So maybe what we do is we say that Albuquerque is farther from Santa Fe than it actually is so that when they get to Albuquerque, it didn't take as long as they thought it would. So, you know, they arrive here in a good mood. They, you know, start to come back. People may not remember what you said, but they'll remember how you made them feel. And I want them to know that if they come to Albuquerque, we'll make them feel good. This will really help tourism. You know what I mean? You can't, it seems insane to me to be able to manipulate a unit of measure arbitrarily to project onto people how they should feel about themselves in your clothes, in your brand for like the sake of brand perception and worse, you know, so many elements of society and the way women are talked about yield the self surveillance we have of ourselves where for many years, it took me a while to stop trying things on and, you know, instinctually not, I, I wasn't, thinking about how it felt or how it looked, my gut instinct was to think about if the size was bigger or smaller than it last was. And that's so messed up. But the sizing in and of itself is is meant to do that in a sense of, it just assumes and projects onto us that we we just inevitably, because we're women, we're going to have this level of self-surveillance. And we care about what the size means. We use that metric to value ourselves. So then there's this sizing sorcery that happens to make yourself feel a certain way with certain brands. And there's an arbitrary application of what should just be numbers. And it just, I don't know, I can't get into that now. But all that to say, again, I, I... I so feel for people that go through this all the time. I know this is a much bigger issue than this one at hand. I thought it was an interesting intersection of female, <laughs> faux female empowerment um, and uh, linguistic choice. Uh, but beyond that, uh, I need to, I want to talk more about this at some point and g- get farther into it. As I think this is an important thing I haven't really dove into in terms of size inclusivity and whatnot. And when you really think about it, it will drive you insane of like what it means and represents about how we're supposed to feel about ourselves. Uh, But anyway, you guys, it's not something I can solve on this podcast today. Certainly wasn't going to be solved with a Pamela LaCroix with an unfit straw. I'm glad they're worried about the turtles, but not about the (laughs) women they make products for. I'm just kidding. Love the turtles. So that was fun. And um, now let's get into some leggings. It's not necessarily an interview or an interrogation. I just wanted to record us having a conversation about a mutual interest we have. And she happens to be a scholar. And I'm so out of my league here. And I'm just so grateful we finally have someone with a respectable opinion (laughs) on this podcast. Because Lord knows mine isn't worth much. All right. I'm going to thank our advertisers. Then we'll get to the interview. Bye. If I like a Kate's favorite things 
like an Oprah's favorite things. This would be in my box of favorite things, but I'm, it's really cool that I work with them because I, I genuinely love this and I use it every freaking day and it's changed my skin. Um, today our show is sponsored by Osea and specifically the product I'm talking about is their, uh, Andaria algae oil. My gosh. Well, first of all, Osea has been making products, uh, for over 25 years that are good for your skin, good for the planet and give you the results you want. They have award-winning cleansers, serums, and face moisturizers, and they're known for creating this amazing body oil with their famous uh, Andaria Algae Body Oil. And uh, it's, I don't know, I put it on when I'm, like, kind of damp, like I have it in my shower, and um, I, I hate that feeling of, like, dry skin and scratch. Ugh. I just have the driest skin, and uh, I've, I just really didn't even understand or know what to do with the body oil until this. And um, I put it on when I'm a little damp and I'm in the shower and it's not greasy or sticky. It absorbs into your skin. It's like the most luxurious, amazing feeling. And your skin just is healthy and glowing. And it stays moisturized throughout the day. And I've never, ever had luck with this, with the lotion. I and never in my life. And I earnestly mean that. Isn't it weird that you can just go your whole life and just use lotion and be like, wow, every lotion kind of sucks. Guess I'll deal. I just, I, don't know, I never thought about it. But it uh, has this really amazing citrus smell. I, it just has, it has spa vibes. It, my skin is soft and smooth after I put it on. And I just... I don't know. It's been a game changer for my very, very dry, sensitive skin. And I haven't bought, I haven't bought body lotion in like a really long time. And it's been liberating because it was usually something that had kind of like a medical name and it just didn't feel sexy. Osea's products are clean, vegan and cruelty-free, climate neutral, created with sustainably sourced seaweed and made in California. So you can feel good about what you're putting on your skin. Experience your new favorite clean skincare line with a special discount just for our listeners. Get 10% off your first order with promo code BETHEREIN5 at OSEAMalibu.com. You'll get free samples with every order and orders over $50 get free shipping. Go to OSEAMalibu.com. Use code BETHEREIN5. I'm headed out of town this weekend and I just missed my brow wax appointment at noon. But I'm not stressed because I've got all of in June. Uh, that worked. I was I was running low on time and I was like, I'm getting a brow wax. Should I get a manicure? And then I realized I don't have to because I can paint my own nails now. And this has been revelatory for me in a post-quarantine world. If you're not already aware of their best-selling Manny Kit, it's changed the lives of many women I know by giving you everything you could ever need to DIY Manny's at home. And the polish lasts for seven plus days. And the kit comes with a buffer and and a nail file and and my favorite part's the little paintbrush that allows you to clean up the edges because like sometimes I just want to mess up the edges just to have the satisfaction of cleaning the lines. And there's proprietary handle called the poppy that stabilizes your hand and allows you to paint more easily in general, but also with your non-dominant hand. And I don't know, it's very freeing because I, I find nail appointments to take up an obnoxious amount of time in life that I feel resentful toward. And it's great to do it yourself. Like give it a try and you'll be shocked. Like people will ask you where your nail salon is. It, just, it looks professional. Uh, because of the way that they kind of walk you through it and give you everything you need. And uh, I'm just such a fan, and you will be too. I also should shout out, I, like, love the Petty, petty System. And the, I just bought my second round of the serum they have for your feet. I don't know. I have trouble with my feet. Uh, anyway, uh, and now you can get 20% off with your first your first Manny System with my code Be There in 5 Your new nail life is here. Get 20% off your first Manny System when you use promo code Be There in 5 at oliveinjune.com.
All right, everybody. I'm so excited to introduce to you Amanda Montel. She's a writer and a language scholar. She's authored two critically acclaimed books, Cultish, The Language of Fanaticism, an indie bestseller about the language of cults from Scientology to Soul Cycle, and also a very well-known book called Word Slut, A Feminist Guide to Taking Back the English Language, which I am the entire target market for, and I love that book. Um, and you might have heard a few of the names that have praised Amanda's work from the New York Times to the Washington Post, The Atlantic. Time Magazine, Harper's Bazaar, to name a few small publications. Uh, but she's also the creator and co-host of a comedy cult podcast called Sounds Like a Cult that I guessed it on. And we talked about Tony Robbins, even though we talked about a million other things, because we could not share more in common. Uh, so I had to have her on my podcast. Please welcome Amanda Montel to be there in five. Oh, gosh. I am honored and verklempt to be here. Just two Venn diagram influencers <laughs> chitting and chatting. It's not every day you find a peer who doesn't get mad, who gets a Ven. And you, we were doing ours in at the same time, independent of one another. And then we kept getting tagged in each other's stuff. True. We're, we're uh, Ven mates, soulmates, but Ven. <laughs> Ven mates. Well, and I mean, like, here's the thing. I build Ven diagrams about cults, MLMs, and religions as like a hobbyist. Um, yeah. It's my side hustle, if you will. But you do it as a scholar and like a subject matter expert. It's about time we get a respectable opinion <laughs> on the show. And uh, for anyone who's new to you, do you mind kind of sharing how you got into this line of work from your cult expertise to, to like linguistics too? Absolutely. Well, my background is in linguistics. That's what I went to school for. Um, and I didn't know linguistics was a field of study until I got to college, but I had always been a language obsessed person. It's always been the lens through which I see, or I guess hear rather the world. Um, I was always a very loquacious child interested in th thesauri. That's a tongue twister, <laughs> thesauri. Interested in thesauri and, <laughs> and the relationship between the way a person talks and the way they move through the world, why British accents were perceived as prestigious while other dialects were perceived as trashy or exotic or anything else. Um, I was interested in the way that a person used language to access power, to craft an identity, to play up a part of their personality. I was just always fascinated by this stuff. Um, and when I got to college, I took uh, my first sex, gender and language class as a young linguistic tyke, as you do. Um, and I discovered that Linguistics wasn't just this, you know, nerdy study for people who are interested in what your tongue is doing when you make erotic American R sound. It has real political, urgent consequences for the world. Um, and so that was the subject matter for my first book. I don't know how I managed to put my linguistics degree to use, but hallelujah. Um, I'm very <laughs> excited about that. Um, and then the cult thing was actually something I'd been interested in my whole life because I grew up with a cult survivor in the family. Um, my dad spent his teenage years in a pretty notorious cult called Synanon. Uh, he was forced to move there by his own father, who was an interesting guy, a card-carrying communist, a pseudo-intellectual. He wanted in on the blossoming countercultural movement of the late 60s and early 70s. So in 1969, he moved my dad and my dad's two little toddler-age half-sisters onto what was supposed to be this socialist utopian compound that started as this alternative drug rehabilitation center and then morphed into something else. Um, and my dad was a skeptical person who'd grown up in Manhattan's School of Hard Knocks up until that point. And he arrived on the compound and looked around at all the conformity and the strange rituals and the fact that no one was allowed to work or go to school on the outside. Everybody had to participate in this freaky nightly ritual called the game. And he thought, hmm, this is a cult. 
Uh, I don't think that word was necessarily in his mind at the time. It was the late 60s. The same year as the Manson family murders, Jonestown hadn't happened yet. Cults weren't necessarily on our mainstream radar. Um, but he at least knew something was off. And so he defected as soon as he could and he became a scientist. But that's another story. Anyway, I grew up on my dad's stories. Synanon, and by far the most interesting part of them was the special language, the in-group versus out-group labels, the special buzzwords, the thought-terminating cliches. I'm sure we'll get into that uh, shortly. But um, yeah, I was fascinated by the way they would call um, their teachers demonstrators because they weren't really teachers in a school. They were at the Synanon school and you didn't live with your parents. You lived with PODs or parents on duty. Um, and that nightly ritual, which was this really hostile form of group therapy where you would have to subject your peers to vicious interpersonal criticism was called the game and it was referred to as something you played. Uh, people who were in Synanon because they had a drug problem were dope fiends, but people who were there just because they wanted to try out this alternative lifestyle were called lifestylers. Um, I was fascinated by all of that. And as I got older and, you know, left my parents' house, uh, I started noticing whispers of Synanon-esque cultish language everywhere, you know, not just in stories of groups like Scientology or in movies like Midsommar, but in the theater program that I was in in high school and the startup where I worked when I was in my early 20s and in the ways that my friends would talk about SoulCycle and wellness. Um, and so, yeah, a few years ago, I decided to write a book about the language of cults, cultish groups along a wide spectrum. Well, a couple things. One, that's interesting as my Venn diagram's ever expanding because on a recent uh, episode that I called Kate Lila, where I answer voicemails like Delilah because I want to be her, um, She somebody called in about their experience at a school within the troubled teen industry, a la Paris Hilton's documentary. And uh, when I was speaking about it, I explained how it has cult-like roots because Synanon is the framework for how they rehabilitate teenage behavior, even though it's not called it anymore. The tenants are still the exact same at these places. People send their kids and the parents are totally misled and manipulated about what's really going on there. Exactly. I didn't even learn until I started researching my book that the troubled teen industry was based on Synanon. Had no idea. I mean, Synanon was always just part of like my family lore. I never even thought to Google it until I started researching cultish um, because it was just like the truth of my family. Like you never think to fact check your parents' childhood stories. <laughs> this is why I lie awake at night Googling things like if Adam and Eve were married, who officiated the wedding? Like, I, you hear things growing up and I'm like, that doesn't make sense. How would they be married if they're the only people on the earth? Or like, I'll Google Bible stories or things like, you know, if God knows everything, why wouldn't he have explained the physics of like the earth being round? Like, why did science have to figure that out? Why, why wouldn't he have told us that? Or like, you know, because the Bible doesn't explain the earth as being round. But I, I like think through all these things now because you're right like one example too of something that's culty in retrospect is we had like a secret saying in our sorority and they said it had never been written down nobody knows it it was a special thing we got upon being initiated and then when I met my husband I told him about this special secret thing I couldn't tell him obviously because it's sacred to the sisterhood he pulls out his phone googles it and says it to my face and I, I was like <gasps> It's in writing? Oh, my God. That's like, what is that episode of Friends where Phoebe's grandma's secret chocolate chip recipe Nestle is just Toll on House. the back of the Nestle? <laughs> it was exactly that. And I'm like, 
And as a person who's on high alert for being manipulated, it's little things like that that I started to pick up on throughout life being like, yeah, this is super effective when you feel like a part of something and you want to honor the sanctity. Um, Yeah. Well, there's also like a physiological basis to the pull of chance, group chance. Interesting. Well, I mean, they just like decrease cortisol, elevate your happiness chemicals, um, especially when they're in a religious setting, which I would argue that Greek life is almost religious, depending on your definition of religion, which religion scholars have been arguing over for decades. But that's another conversation. <laughs> I know we could have so many Venn diagram combos because like, yeah, sororities <laughs> in like the initiation or in recruitment and like the singing of the songs and the uh, frizzin, like goosebumpy vibes of like group chanting uh, and togetherness. I, when I was young and in youth group circles, I think I thought the Holy Spirit was the fact that I like live music. (laughs) (laughs) I think about that all the time because something that your youth and my youth have in common is exposure to evangelical, like mega church environments. But I was exposed to them because my middle school best friend's mom was a born again Christian I was raised like an atheist Jew, but I was anthropologically completely fascinated by this belief system and this group. And so uh, I think against my parents' knowledge, I would sometimes skip Hebrew school to attend their megachurch with them. And yeah, I I would see everyone like hands in the air Mm -hmm. swaying to this type of music that was like hella catchy, like loved it. Who doesn't love a Christian pop song? The the chord progressions are like designed to give you chills and I was like wow this is all a matter of perspective because they think it's the Holy Spirit and I'm like oh no that's like a one three five four or like I don't I forget all my music theory but I'm like that's just like this chord progression that we really (laughs) resonate with and like maybe that is the Holy Spirit I mean who can really say what is a Holy Spirit (laughs) I don't know like that is that is so self-actualizing I'm like that my entire religious experience is based on chord progression. Like that's uh, really all I I care about in so many, (laughs) so many formats. Well, oh my God. So not to go on a complete tangent, but like one of my closest friends was in Young Life, the like college uh, slash high school evangelical youth group thing and um, very culty. And I just went to a Sylvanesso concert with her where we were like, microdosing on shrooms. And that feels religious to me. Like that feels genuinely spiritual to me. And I looked over to her and I was like, listening to this music, like being on small levels of this drug, like, does this feel not unlike your young life experience? And we had like an interesting conversation about that. It's like, what is transcendence? Why does it have to involve God or religious hierarchies at all? Yes. I don't know. And what environments facilitate these feelings of of peace and knowing and forgiveness and abstract unquantifiable things that just make you feel better in the moment, even if they're not necessarily true. It's an escape's an escape. And, you know, I can't fault people for that in any format until it gets manipulative and controlling and predatory, which is what brings us to what we're here today to talk about. <laughs> I guess I I should start by asking you too, like as in the basis of your book, Cultish, I, what I think is interesting about it from a linguistic standpoint is that cult is one of those words that I that, you know, in passing sounds aggressive and specific to the Jonestown Nexium type of uh, 
master manipulation to a level where it is so blatantly criminal, it's unanimously agreed upon to be bad. And I think what you do right. is take, you know, you you kind of break it down to explain that the language of fanaticism and cultish language applies to a lot of groups that may not even be an obvious problem, might be doing positive things for people, might be doing bad things for people. Cultish things happen everywhere. And there's almost a, a misunderstanding of the what the term means and it's like negative sentiment, right? Totally. Um, well, the first part of my book is dedicated to unpacking what this word cult even means or doesn't mean and the language that we use to talk about cults. Um, because starting this project, I was hoping that my personal understanding of what a cult is would get more concrete and more succinct. But in fact, the opposite was true. Um, I found that this word has become so subjective and so sensational that a lot of scholars who study new religious movements and sociology in this area don't even use it, at least not in formal settings. Um, the word cults didn't always mean something sinister. In its earliest iterations from centuries ago, it had a much more innocent meaning. It just meant homage paid to divinity or offerings made to win over the gods. And then by the 1800s, it meant a sort of churchly classification alongside religion or sect. It meant something new or alternative, but not necessarily nefarious. It really wasn't until the mid 20th century when the emergence of a bunch of new religions in the United States spooked old school conservatives and Christians that the word cult became associated with heretics, freaks, sinners. But again, it still wasn't this universally known, terrifying thing. It wasn't the symbol of fear that every American was aware of, not until the Manson family murders and then the Jonestown massacre. And after those events, we got the satanic panic, that movement in the 80s when nice suburban people thought that Satan worshipers were kidnapping and abusing their kids. This cult hysteria um, emerged. But until then, you know, cult, didn't have this incredibly dark connotation. But what's funny is that in the you know 60s and 70s, as soon as the word cult became terrifying, it also became cool. So it didn't take long for 70s era youth to coin slang terms like cult followed and cult classic. Um, and so now the incredibly wide spectrum of groups that this, this word can be applied to because it really can mean anything depending on the context from a group involving death and destruction to frickin' Glossier, <laughs> the, this wide spectrum of meanings really says something about our culture's relationship to community, spirituality, identity, meaning, and that relationship has gotten really weird. <laughs> I Now that you mention it, I really am in the cult of wanting a dewier face. And those Glossier gals <laughs> with their feathered, laminated brows and their dewy cheeks. Oh my God. Like I used to be a beauty editor. That was my day job that I happily quit. Um, and I was in that call. I mean, writing this book has been an incredibly humbling experience because it's shown me the error of my ways. I always thought like, I'm so skeptical. I'm, I'm, I'm so cynical even, although I don't really think of myself as a cynic. I think of myself as an optimistic skeptic. Yeah. An optimistic nihilist. <laughs> Anyways, I, I was like, I am so skeptical. Like, you can't pull the wool over my eyes. Um, but I was like, writing this book, oh no, I, I was in the cult of the LA beauty industry to a degree. I wasn't all in, but if you had met me three years ago, you wouldn't recognize me. My hair was bleached to the gods. I had eyelash extensions and 
a spray tan and fucking gel nails. It was absurd. Like I'm in the cult of so many things. I've been in toxic one-on-one relationships, which are really just cults of one. It was really an exercise in empathy, learning about all of the myths that surround cults and cult followers. And and I think it's a healthy exercise that, you know, I, 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 like to call like the mainstream my lazy river. Like I like things that are popular. I I hop the bandwagon like it's a freaking haunted hayride, and and then I look around and observe pe- <laughs> and I like observe people on it. Like I, I almost I'll hop on anything, and I'll like you will kind of keep a level of healthy skepticism where I'm like, are people really not into this? But like I'm there too. I'm speaking the language too. I'm doing the things too. And I think as I've gotten older, I've kind of realized what that was, and it's I've done a lot of questioning my whole life of like. I've just always really been deferential to figures of authority. Anyone who paints themselves as knowing more or better than I do based on experience, like lived experience, expertise, age or otherwise, you just are taught to believe people. And then you Uh look back on your life experiences as this amalgam of a bunch of individual people's truths that they told you was the truth. And you were unforced to kind of unpack why you believe what you believe, where it's from. And um, I think that the like culty language is at the root of so many of these things, even if they aren't in the position of something like spiritual in your life. And, um, I think that, yeah, it's, it's interesting to go through your book and to realize that it's healthy to talk about it and to use the word without its negative connotation, because it helps you be more skeptical going into things of when is something gets to the point of being damaging versus when it's just a shared language due to a shared interest. Right. Sure. Oh, there's a wide spectrum. I mean, this is why I decided to title the book Cultish. Well, it's actually a double entendre. In part, it (laughs) describes this sort of hedge that I'm using to describe this continuum of groups. It's like, okay, we might not all agree that Heaven's Gate and CrossFit are (laughs) full-blown cults, but at the very least, we can talk about them in the context of being cultish. Um, And also, cultish is this language that I describe in the book, this pattern of linguistic techniques that all cultish leaders from Jim Jones to Jeff Bezos use. It's like English or Spanish or Swedish, but cultish. Um, Yeah, I mean, that's another problem with this word cult or when you use it in earnest, um, it's used to pass judgment. It's often it only works to shut down a conversation because people get really defensive when you accuse them of being in a cult. Nobody wants to be told that, at least not seriously. Um, And so I don't know. I mean, cultish is sort of this way to soften it, to pry that door of conversation open a little bit and also to invite us all to consider that we are all under cultish influence even if we're not all in a full-on cult (laughs) right it's to be critiqued with the level of self-awareness we've all been a part of this in some way is an important thing like you know if you've been in an mlm or been involved in some way like no one wants anybody to feel shamed it's rather a dissection of how this is a slippery slope, how people get so easily drawn in. And per the cult-ishness of, of Lula Rich, um, Amanda and I wanted to talk through a really popular documentary on Amazon Prime right now, which is called Lula Rich. It's about the Lula Rose story. And I'm sure I did an intro before this that explained to you more of the plot of that. Um, but I wanted to read a segment from a really good article that Amanda wrote for Bustle about this documentary. And that she said, in the Years since I first learned about LuLaRoe, multi-level marketing companies, MLMs for short, have become a personal obsession of mine. Network marketing, relationship marketing, direct sales, there are at least a half dozen synonyms for these pay and recruit organizations. The fraternal twins of illegal pyramid schemes, which often resemble fanatical fringe religions and the tactics and language they use to recruit members and convince them to stay in the organization. 
LuLaRoe was one of the organizations that inspired her recent book, Cultish. And in the book, what I wanted to kind of talk through is uh, Amanda explains that there are three uh, kind of core tenets to cultish language. And you can tell me what the origins are. But as far as I understand, they are uh, uh, conversion, condition and coercion. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So I'm leaning on the work of this amazing religion scholar named Rebecca Moore, um, who has written a lot about the myth of brainwashing. And I write about this, too, in my book, because brainwashing is the number one explanation that the prevailing media and wisdom give for why people wind up in these fanatical fringe groups. Oh, they were brainwashed. They were mind controlled. But Brainwashing is nothing but a metaphor. It's not a real or testable phenomenon. It doesn't meet the criteria of the scientific method. You can't prove that brainwashing doesn't exist. We rarely pry further, and that prevents us from answering questions that are much more interesting. What are the techniques of manipulation that get people in this world whirlpool, and what are the techniques of manipulation that make them stay? And as it turns out, the most powerful techniques have everything to do with language. This first one uh, in conversion, um, it I believe the kind of sub headline of that is that cults make people feel uh, unique, but also connected to others. Is that right? Yeah, they want to make you feel special, like you're a part of this elite group that has answers to the world's most urgent problems, answers that others don't. And conversion is that moment when you're, I don't know, at an introductory meeting or on a call or doing some sort of ritual where all of a sudden you feel like you have to belong. You have to be a part of this thing. You cannot go back to the way your life was before. So all at once, you sort of already feel separated from your former life, your former identity, everybody else on the outside. Um, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Like you can convert to certain ideologies or groups um, that aren't necessarily going to exploit you. But it is it is really this like profound, sudden event um, that often comes after a bout of Love bombing, uh, which is a word that gets used a lot in the context of both abusive relationships and cults, when um, at first a group will shower you with attention and praise. You're a girl boss. Like you're going to be the CEO you were always meant to be, a boss babe. You can work part time from home and make a full time living. All these promises that we are conditioned in Amer as Americans in the case of MLMs to really resonate with. Um, and then those promises are later exchanged for social control. Once those buzzwords that were used to love bomb you become charged such, such that they can also be used as a form of threat. And this, this piece is so interesting in terms of convergent conversion and it being its own form of um, evangelizing in a sense, not only to your point of, uh, like having something that others don't have, having solutions for life's problems that other people don't have. The the and then the kind of energetic and cultural. I'll have what she's having. Allure of people, um, but in the context of Lula Roe, it literally had the most churchy, even in its mission statement. Lula okay, Lula Roe's mission statement was, "Where through fashion we create freedom." red flag. <laughs> Anything restrictive that creates freedom is terrifying. Very 1984. For sure. Um, where through fashion, we create freedom, serve others and strengthen families, a community where lives are being blessed and dreams achieved through love, purpose, confidence, trust and growth. 
it is a Vikings company. Like, oh yeah. Well, okay. So here's the thing. To an extent, all modern companies have to have what are called organizational ideologies. Yeah. They have to have this sense where you're not just selling leggings or a beach towel or an eye cream. You're selling an identity. You're selling sexiness, eco-consciousness. You're selling the opportunity to be a good person. You're selling the priceless opportunity to handle whatever life throws at you. That line, I think, was taken verbatim from a pitch I got in my inbox when I back when I was a beauty editor for like a CBD serum. <laughs> it was pitched as the priceless opportunity to handle whatever life throws at you. Yeah. So this type of hyperbolic language can be found even outside of the MLM context. But what MLMs do is they take these values that we as Americans under Protestant capitalism are all conditioned to have, you know, self-improvement, ambition, progress, meritocracy, the idea that those who achieve success really deserve it and those who didn't just didn't work hard enough, didn't earn it. Um, the MLM organizational ideologies and promise are like on steroids, though. Um, they are promising not just a financial opportunity, but an opportunity to heal your family, to do something profoundly patriotic. I mean, the biggest the biggest MLM in the world is Amway, which literally stands for American Way. They're promised that you're going to please God by affiliating with this MLM. It is no coincidence that so many MLMs are Christian or Mormon affiliated. Um, so the promises on the table are far more than this company can actually provide, even if it wasn't structured like a pyramid scheme in this incredibly exploitative, predatory way. But you're completely right. I mean, the language that LuLaRoe and the, the two founders are Mormon and weren't shy about, you know, leading with that type of rhetoric, su super religious sounding, like join the movement. We're one big family. We are connected. You're never alone. Talk of sisterhood and endless talk of blessings, blessed to be a part of this community, helping families, blessing lives was one of their slogans. So, you know, it's interesting and it's reflective of the prosperity gospel in a sense, you know, this idea that heavenly blessed heavenly blessings and monetary hashtag blessings are inherently connected. And this was a message that LuLaRoe and all MLMs really push hard. <laughs> Absolutely. And yeah, that's an interesting point. And I've kind of wondered this about just marketing in general with, uh, Gen Z's, you know, known level of awareness that they're being sold to. And like marketing is essentially just a, the game of manipulation in the form of offering product features that can provide some sort of trade-off or value add to the person on the receiving end. And, you know, everything is so hyperbolic in nature or abstract in nature and not guaranteeable. And as a person who loves words and writing slogans and shit, like, you know, I'm into that. I want people to communicate values through a brand. And I always struggle with where this line is drawn. And Lula Rose um, tagline stands out to me, even just specifically, like all, all the rest of it aside, the specific commentary on blessings is where I, you know, my red flags go up. I get frustrated because it's like, yes, yeah, something abstract, like you'll get XYZ product feature, or you'll be more beautiful is one thing. 
But religious speak like this is of the highest manipulation to me because it suggests that, you know, this known capitalistic venture stands to have some sort of supernatural impact on others. And that's a thing that inherently can't be proven or disproven if you're a believer in blessings, right? And I think the words like that just really kill me and feel extra manipulative because they know that that's not something that's easily dissented if people do seem to theoretically be doing well under it. Yeah, there's so much at play here. I mean, in the religious cults chapter of my book, I talk about the idea of um, performative linguistic performativity. This definition of performativity is different from like performative activism on social media, which I think is how a lot of people understand right. it now. But in the context of linguistics, linguistic performativity, um, in a nutshell, is this idea that language doesn't simply reflect reality, it creates reality. So every time an utterance is spoken, it causes a material change to happen in the world. So the most sort of like on the nose examples of linguistic performativity would be, you know, uh, an efficient at a wedding saying, I now pronounce you married or an umpire calling you're out um, at a baseball game. Oh my gosh, I'm so glad I got those sports terminologies, right? I, I don't know how to talk about sports. But anyways, <laughs> um, the idea is that language is inherently performative, but religious language is the most performative kind of language there is because the stakes and the context involved are not just a baseball field or a wedding or life here on earth. They're the afterlife. They're all of eternity. They're all of existence. So if you believe that the language being spoken here, talk of blessings and movements um, are going to affect your afterlife forever, that's manipulative on a whole new scale. <laughs> right. Right. And I think that the, I mean, yeah, there, this is like the most layered conversation ever, but in, in the interest of more common language uh, amongst cults or cult-ish language or language commonly used within MLMs, it's the other key word in the slogan, in addition to like the blessings piece where uh, it comes into talking about like families and more specifically kind of targeting um moms. And I wanted to talk to you about the language of this kind of, you know, my uh, very unprofessional thesis in Rachel Hollis and the Rose Colored Glass Ceiling was talking about this, you know, way women are spoken to, you're made for more, be your own boss, boss babe, mompreneur. I should call myself a podcast her at this point. Like, I don't know, but they're gendered and, <laughs> and infantilizing terms that like, but MLMs aren't normal jobs that are hiring you for your, like your skills, expertise, or work experience, or how to how you will add value. It's the opposite in that like it's why this job is so great for you, projecting and assuming that you know you want to be home with your kids more, that you are right. feeling oppressed in some way by participating in gender roles, and not because of their choices, by the way, or there's anything wrong with staying at home, but because we have broader a broader issue of women's labor being taken for granted, among other things. Um, and so it's like, that's what kills me is like, they know people feel exhausted and undervalued and perhaps yearn for a situation that feels more equitable or lucrative. You know, this documentary really covers mostly white wives and mothers who were kind of yep. enticed and shamed with language about deserving more, being their own boss, spending time with their kids, being able to take them to Disney World, hawking material possessions and the like. All the while, uh, it has nothing to do with actually benefiting their lives. It just kind of, you know, preys on their vulnerabilities and makes the people at the top rich. And 
uh, that was kind of, kind of a long-winded way of saying like this stuff drives me crazy and I can't ever put my finger on how to succinctly talk about the way women are talked to who are feeling the um, effects of having a broader systemic issue and claiming to solve their problems with really superficial capitalistic ventures in the form of quippy sayings we put on mugs. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I talk about my problems literally like morphologically with a girl boss in my first book. Um, and it's tricky because there are some people who think that uh, highlighting one's gender in language when you're talking about spaces or professions where women have largely been shut out can actively be a good thing. You know, calling out that someone is a, a woman scientist or a woman doctor or something. And then there are others who think that that's super problematic and why would you ever call out someone's gender if you wouldn't do so for a man? It's like enforcing default maleness. Um, that's another conversation. But in terms of MLM rhetoric, um, ever since the dawn of the modern direct sales industry in the 1940s, MLMs have riffed on whatever trendy pseudo-feminist buzzwords were popular at the time. So while Tupperware was promised to be the best thing that happened to women since they got the vote, now MLMs like Arbonne and Duterra and It Works and LuLaRoe will prey on this new generation of, well, actually there are like subcategories too, because there are also the more like natural, holistic, sustainable wellness warrior MLMers. And then there are the boss babe, um, forgive me, Chugi uh, MLMers, like the LuLaRoe people <laughs> um, who might resonate with talk of um, boss babe, CEO, mompreneur, Pinterest feminist statements that might appear in bridesmaid font on a regrammable quote post. Um, you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And yeah, uh, you know, th there's a lot of things at play here. Um, these women are vulnerable because they are locked out of the dignified labor market. Um, in the 1940s, the MLM industry was able to become so successful because so many white women who had worked during World War II were now driven back into the home after their husbands returned from war. They lacked the sense of community and empowerment and meaning that they derived from employment. And here the MLM industry came in to offer this alternative. Here you can have that empowerment. You can have that community that you're missing while not having to leave the home, while still being able to fit this mold of the good Susie homemaker. Um, and that's still the image that the MLM industry is selling. There's a lot of talk in the uh, MLM analysis world that they're not really selling entrepreneurial uh, endeavors to, you know, aspiring startup CEOs. They're selling hope. They're right. selling uh, this picture of gender normativity and, you know, success that can't possibly be achieved in this system. Um so, yeah, now um, MLM rhetoric is still preying on this, uh, primarily preying on this group of stay-at-home white wives and mothers because a lot of them are still locked out of the dignified labor market. But at the same time, they have enough privilege and they're, you know, friendly and, and connected to their neighborhood. They're good PTA moms. They have access to their husband's money. They have all of these resources that would make them attractive to 
an MLM. It's like, why would an MLM want someone who is so hard up for cash that they couldn't put up the buy-in fee? Why would an MLM want someone who is so down and out that the moment things turn sour, which they inevitably will, they're going to have to tap out. Like you want someone who is well-connected and privileged and optimistic enough that they're willing to play the long game. And that sort of defies this stereotype that we have of cults preying on the desperate, disturbed and intellectually deficient. You say so many, I like I'm taking notes while you talk because you say so many things that I am like, damn, I got to remember that. Or I want to comment on <laughs> these are the things that I need to put more uh, scholarly frameworks to because it's so it's kind of abstract for me and hard to put together. But when you kind of explain the like Protestant capitalistic pipeline pipeline as it relates to women in the workforce, it makes sense and it all has roots. And it's not like a theory. This is something that's been a model at play you know, ever since a post-World War II America and kind of to what I mean. And earlier. Oh, and, and earlier. earlier. I mean, like the groundwork for this stuff was laid by Calvinism. <laughs> right. You can go back really far. Oh my God. Just um, if you want to get like into the nitty gritty, you should check out this book called um, Charismatic Capitalism by Nicole Woolsey Bogart, I mm -hmm. think is her name. Um it's like a 200 page or less, like 150 page long book that tracks the whole like MLM history and economics and breaks it down really simply. It was the source for my book. I, it, you would find it interesting. Oh yeah. Fully writing that down and reading it. I would love that. And yeah, like kind of what we're talking about too, with, um, women in the workforce, like when it's particularly maddening when people manipulate the most privileged echelon of an oppressed group like within women to suggest that they're gaining meaningful power, that they're being empowered using this capitalistic bullshit to suggest they're doing something important and systemic when it's individualistic. And it's and that makes it worse for other women because this sales model can have an increased detrimental impact on women of color, women in different socioeconomic situations. Like we talked about in the What Would Jesus Brew, like MLMs target different groups, like the catastrophic effects of herbal life on Latinx communities with their nutrition shop model, mm -hmm. et cetera. But Lula Rowe um, is posed in the documentary as being white wives and mothers um, currently bearing a great deal of emotional and invisible labor at home and not necessarily involved in the workforce. And uh, they're kind of telling them this lie that they're they're taking back some sort of, you know, empowering narrative all the while, Lula Rope doesn't actually mean it even in another layer because they tried to get husbands involved, not only to make people wholly committed, yes. involved in their business. Hashtag retire your husband. Retire your husband. And that was like another layer. I'm like, a, a lot of these places are just like women supporting women vacant. But this is like women supporting women, women's empowerment. But actually, could your husband quit his job and run your business? And while my wife is talking about being empowered, I'm going to cut her off and mansplain how I think she's so powerful. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, my God. So much to unpack. Yes. I also want to reiterate that MLMs do not only prey on uh, stay at home white wives and mothers. Um, it's really anyone locked out of that, again, dignified labor market. So, yeah, immigrant communities are targeted by a lot of MLMs because of, in part, the language barrier, but also because these are folks who moved here for the American dream in large part. And that's what the MLM industry is exploiting, this almost like spoofed American dream on steroids. Um, college kids are also preyed upon by MLMs. I can't tell you how many kids I knew in college who sold Cutco knives. <laughs> Cutco is an MLM. Um, Cutco my parents targets them. college males. What's with that? <laughs> oh, yeah. So, like, yeah, the, it's this idea. Again, you're not just selling leggings. You're 
making sure that all of America becomes Christian by recruiting them to be a part of this business. It's it's missionary. I mean, the the life consuming ideologies of MLMs are missionary in character, just like a lot of Christianity and, and Mormonism are. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that that kind of there's this like, uh, you know, pervasive patriarchal structure that comes from or feels very kind of religious and antiquated in nature, even though Dan and Mark, they're, they were pretty forthcoming about being uh, Mormon. And at the top of the first episode, too, they talked about how they believe like an equal opportunity. They believe in like full fairness. Like there's a legitimate delusion here that everybody starts off in the exact same circumstances. And there's also this blatant, uh, the woman kind of speaks in this passive way that suggests that like, you know, she was along for the ride. And um, I was reading something that was saying that like, anytime she talked about her success, it was like, well, the guy at the, um, the swap meet told me this, and then my kids helped me do that. And then this just happened. And it's kind of that same semi-religious language of like supernatural forces or blessings or not taking credit or focusing on the tactical things that got you to where you are, but rather the kind of happenstance synchronicities that got you to where you are, which are just an impossible formula for people to follow in the first place. And impossible to argue with. Yes. How are you supposed to have a dialogue with someone who's like, these are heavenly blessings? It's like, well... Okay. <laughs> yeah, you can't you can't prove that or, or or disprove that. And it's kind of like, yeah, I mean, watching the difference between how she explains her story versus the deposition versus how she would actually talk on sales calls, it was all a totally different person. Like she knew exactly oh what she was doing. Yes, this reminds me, I wanted to bring up something with you that I didn't get to include in my piece for Bustle um or in any of the conversations I've had about this yet. Um Remember in the documentary when they were asked, where Deanne and Mark were asked, like, can you explain the what went behind the decision to create bonuses for recruiting people? Um, which, of course, like everyone knows, that's how you make the real big bucks. Right. Um, and Mark goes to try to explain the math and Deanne interrupts him and she goes, no, 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 no. She has almost like a halfway to Jennifer Coolidge type of voice. Yes. Um I mean, I don't dare disrespect Jennifer Coolidge like that, but you know what I'm saying. And she's just like, no, 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 no. She's like, you're you're going to get logical. You're, you're trying to get logical right now. Let me explain it. Because MLMers know that the math speaks for itself. Like the numbers are really bad. The numbers are a hot mess that reveal everything you need to know. But again, the language is compelling enough that you can obscure whatever truths you need to obscure. So she starts then talking in this like very highfalutin bullshit vernacular about what the bonuses were for, like spiritually, not in terms of like the structure of the business. And I just was like, there it is. It's happening in real time. She was like interrupting him. No, like, no, 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 no. Don't talk numbers now. (laughs) And it's funny because that you're absolutely right. And the way I kind of received that was her kind of playing the, the, oh, I don't want to talk numbers, like card of like, yeah. I don't know better, but you're right. It was kind of, it was manipulative in nature. If it was, it was like, don't get into that. That's not the sexy sales pitch. Obvi- like we know 99% of, you know, retailers fail. We know that after 13 levels down a pyramid, you saturate the entire U.S. population. You 
mathematically cannot make what the 1% is making. Well, I think she wanted to create the impression that she it's like very feminine not to know about math. Um, It's very like adorable and dainty not to want to talk about numbers. I think that's what I think that's how she wanted it to read. But I was like, no, you don't want to talk about math because the math gives you away. (laughs) Absolutely. Because that's the kind of it was so interesting hearing that her mom wrote that book um, about how to like manipulate men that had quotes like, Stand before a mirror in the privacy of your room and say to yourself, I am just a helpless woman at the mercy of you big, strong men. With this thought in mind, try a pretty pout, stick out your lower lip and say, I thought you liked me. Or stamp your feet daintily, saucily and shake your curls as much as to say, I am furious. But what can a little girl like me do with a big, strong man like you? So (laughs) Deanne's mother wrote this book. Um, about how to like be empowered by that, you know, men and women were, they're equal, but they're not the same. You need to manipulate what men like about or need from women to get him to do what you want or to buy you things. And like Deanne lives out this philosophy and like everything she does. And it's like so cringy to watch it being done so earnestly. And I mean, yes, like, they're too, they, th- I think that's what is crazy making. They think that they are good people and they think that they have done of nothing course. wrong. Um, so that's how all these cults start out. Yeah. <laughs> like the, the, you know, again, like the idea that most of us believe is that cult leaders are these evil genius masterminds who have this grandmaster plan from the start, but like. Jonestown started out as an integrationist church. Like they never know how their organization is going to spiral out of control. They're just opportunists. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I remember their nephew or whatever, that one guy who got fired being like, we were building the ship as, or we were building the plane as we were flying the plane. That's how all cults operate. Nobody has a grand genius master plan that they know from the start and that they execute perfectly. Like it always just spirals out of control and they follow the power wherever and however fast it comes. Um, And, you know, I often comment that, like, the difference between a cult that, like, has legs, (laughs) like Scientology, um, and a cult that gets, like, shut down or canceled before its time or whatever, like, early on, is that, um, well, a a cult with legs has the ability to outlive the death or imprisonment of its leader um, because the leader had the sort of restraint to prevent it from exploding too quickly, like beyond what Mm. they could handle. So like Keith Raniere, who, by the way, was a failed pyramid schemer, a failed MLM leader, was not able to pull that off. Um, Chuck Diederich, the leader of Synanon, the cult my dad was in, was not able to pull that off. Deanne and Mark weren't able to pull that off. Jim Jones was not able to pull that off. Um, but some are. Uh, and so that's, um, yeah, it's just another piece of evidence that like we have the wrong idea when it comes to what constitutes a cult, what a cult looks like, that sort of thing. And that leads me to the second piece of this, you know, the, the condition piece and what makes something cultish is the encouragement of, uh, in your words, people to feel dependent on a particular leader, group, or product to the extent that life without them feels impossible. Uh, and the whether it's a, a business or an actual religion or a self-help guru or a soul cycle instructor, whoever the hell it is, 
a, a tendency to have this you know model of leadership and this way of communicating that bolsters the individuals at the top as, as enlightened. Uh, they, they can't be questioned. Uh, they become these kind of holy figures that make people lose their personal boundaries and the create a culture where there not only is no room to not worship, there is absolutely no room for dissent or criticism as well. And I wanted to ask you, like, I, objectively speaking, I don't find Deanne and Mark to be particularly uh, magnetic or people that I would no, follow either. against all odds, want to call mom and dad, people I'd be dying to impress. But like, same, I mean, why did I want to impress any adult throughout my life? Like, I don't know. I, I don't know the je ne sais quoi there, but like, what about the way Mark and Deanne are as leaders for that second kind of conditioning piece? What makes them like so powerful? Yeah. Well, I think this speaks to sort of what you were saying before about Deanne's mom and how she would really like repeat those phrases that her mom had included in the book and really embody them. You know, speaking of like 1984 Orwellian newspeak, you you can't actually use language to brainwash someone into believing something they don't want to believe. You can't convince someone that someone is a charismatic leader who's going to save the planet or fix your finances and your life in general if they don't want to believe it. You can only coax someone into believing slightly more and more and more radical versions of what they're already open to. So if you see yourself in Deanne and Mark, I don't know, if they remind mm. you of someone you know. Or um, just what like is charisma? you. It's like, yeah, like if if you feel like you want to aspire to them or that you relate to them in some way, that they look like a teacher you once had or like the principal in your school or like your aunt you really loved or I don't know. I mean, like what, what, complicated amalgam of things makes us attracted to some people and not others. That is part of it. That will make you more amenable to want to put your faith in them. It's like, I personally, like you, don't see it with Deanne and Mark, but I would see it if fucking... Michelle Zahner of Japanese Breakfast wanted to start a cult. Sorry, I just got reading. I just got done reading her book, Crying in H Mart. And I'm like, I so worship her now. But anyways, <laughs> it's like we just worship the people we want to worship at the end of the day. Um, and then the language that they use combines with our deeply ingrained biases like confirmation bias and sunk cost fallacies and all these things to like do the brainwashing for them. Mm. <laughs> so yes, there are, there are techniques that can be used to shut down dissent. That's where you have your thought terminating cliches, stock expressions that are there to silence independent thinking and questioning. Um, you have, you know, loaded us versus them labels to psychologically separate yourself from everybody outside the group and imbue you with a sense of elitism. Like there are all these elements of cultish language that I outline in my book and that apply to LuLaRoe, but you can't convince someone to believe them in a certain setting unless they on some level want to. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. And that uh, earlier when you were saying like there's perhaps an, ele an element of relatability or in getting like couples involved, like seeing themselves in these two people with these family values that are people of faith that, you know, kind of embody the token rags to riches story that everybody finds appealing within MLM uh, or that like a Rachel Hollis stands up and says, I'm just I'm you, you're me. Look at my life. 
here is the formula. We all start from the same place, uh, you know, you know, like get the ingredients, make the recipe, you'll turn out like me. And then if it doesn't turn out the same way, it's, you know, not the fault of her recipe. It's the, you, the cook, it's your ingredients, it's your quality. It's the amount of practice or effort. It's so it's like, yeah, to be people that are theoretically relatable. So you think you can attain whatever they have that you want. And with these broad strokes missions of not only being able to strengthen families, but also supernaturally bless you in some way. And, uh, you know, ch- allow you to achieve financial freedom and divinity. It's like tall order. If these people represent that and you're being influenced by them and the only thing in your way is you from being like them, I, I guess it makes sense in that it's just it it feeds into itself. The more money they, they are telling you, you get out what you put in. So you put more and more in and you see small, hyperbolized, exaggerated examples of the margin of people that do well and keep you know, working toward it incessantly, I guess. I just am always shocked that the, what in these documentaries, like what causes people to draw the uh, draw a line or be or be like, wait a second, that doesn't feel right. Because like these people get away with so much. And I probably would have called that brainwashing. But to your point, it's a bunch of little things and a culture that works for itself to perpetuate a message. Yeah, totally. I mean, this is what those three C's, conversion, conditioning, and coercion, are. They're what do exist in place of brainwashing. That might sound like semantics, but it's really not. Um, And yeah, I mean, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance here. And like these MLMs, just like other destructive cults, even more destructive cults, don't start out with the hardest stuff to get on board with. Like they don't start out with the highest prices or the tallest orders. They don't start out by saying you need to get gastric bypass surgery. They start out with things that are easy to get on board with. And again, with the love bombing, with the compliments. And then the longer you're in, the harder it becomes to get out. And you play tricks on yourself, you know? Like, you know maybe in your bones that this isn't really working and your bank account is plummeting and the promises haven't been fulfilled, but we as humans have incredibly high levels of loss aversion. Like we, wins feel good to us, but losses feel way worse. Um, And so we are willing to do a lot of mental gymnastics to avoid looking defeats in the eye. And even though that cognitive dissonance might be really, really strong, we'll tell ourselves things like, well, I recruited one more person this month than I did last month. Like, that's a good sign. There's a lot of magical thinking that goes on here. And this is actually the subject of my next book. But anyway, like, I'm just so interested in the cognitive biases and delusions and tricks that we play on ourselves because there are also, like, reasons for these tricks that we play on ourselves, like self-protective reasons. Mm -hmm. But when someone else is exploiting them, they can also be really destructive. Um, So yeah, I don't know. I, I think like it's easy to just be like, oh, I would never do that under those circumstances. But if you're fucking 10 years in or five years in and you have a storage locker full of bulldog leggings that nobody wants or people wanted the bulldog leggings, bumblebee leggings, you're, you're going to, you're going to tell yourself a lot of stories to make that okay. <laughs> right. Yes. And that's kind of uh, the, we didn't even like talk about the uh, just general uh, war crime on the eyes that are these designs. Like the, the <laughs> speaking of the, like the first point we brought up of being unique and connected, it's like, 
was the unique nature of the look of these leggings a piece of this? Because they are so ugly, yet... <laughs> but may, but with the manipulation of some of something being exclusive or limited edition or like, well, it's was like that the Emperor's new clothes, right? Yeah, it's like right. You can, it's yeah, it's like herd mentality. It's scarcity mentality. It's like the gambler's effect when you like pull the slot machine to see what you're gonna get. And like they talked about this in the documentary, that rush of dopamine dopamine that you get, not when you open the package, but right before you're about to open the package. It's like physiologically addictive, those those feelings. Um so it almost doesn't even matter that it's ugly. But then but then of course you have the language that's reinforcing those things, like the rare patterns that everybody really wanted to unicorns. <laughs> I feel bad even talking shit about the patterns. You know, if people wore them and liked them, if they were buttery soft, whatever. Uh, I I was a card carrying Chevron, you know, participator in like the 20, what, 2011, 2012. Like it happens to the best of us. I mean, I got into it for a minute. Like if I got married in 2011, I probably would have had a Chevron table runner. You know, I wasn't, yeah, a, I'm I mean, not above I don't it. want to talk. Look at my eyeshadow, but. <laughs> I think it's beautiful. Yeah, I was just in a different cult. I went to like art school, so. I was in the cult of like uh, tights you rip yourself. Oh, that is that's its own uh, personality trait. And like, you know, just artfully distressed denim is one thing, but actively distressed tights are a different level of, you know, youthful angst. Yes, I um, it was my personality. It was fully my personality. And that's how that's another red flag. Did you identify as a hipster? Before we hear more from Amanda in rare form about her hipstery, you know, countercultural days, can't wait. I want to tell you about all form. I was doing an Instagram live last night and I showed you guys my sofa. It, and we were talking about the issues with the, the cargo ships and stuff and how everything's delayed. And I was like, I got that giant leather sectional sofa in like a week's time. Um, all form is awesome. If you listen to the show for a while, you know, great partners of ours are, uh, Helix is Helix Sleep, and they make mattresses, and they've also left the bedroom and started making sofas. Their company, Allform, is making incredible sofas that are modular, and no matter what size you pick, you can add or subtract seats. You can make it into two couches. You can add an ottoman. You can add a chaise. We got it because we're I've been trying to move for eternity, and whenever, wherever we go, I want our sofa to be able to fit. Um, so it's the easiest way you can customize a sofa using premium materials and at a fraction of the cost of traditional stores. You pick your fabric, it's spill, stain, scratch resistant, the sofa color, leg color, sofa size and shape. And they have armchairs, love seats, all the way up to eight seat sectionals. I get DMs all the time saying, are you blowing smoke that your dog digs in this sofa and it is leather and it doesn't matter? And yes, you got like tugboat is insane. I wouldn't, I would not say that you'd be able to see evidence of it. He buries bones and they're all the live long day. Um, but all form sofas are delivered directly to your home with fast free shipping in the past. If you want to order a sofa, it can take weeks or even months or now apparently it's taking even longer. Uh, but all form takes just three to seven days to arrive in the mail and you can assemble it yourself in a few minutes. No tools needed. I know it sounds risky to get a sofa you haven't sat on, but you have a hundred days to decide if you want to keep it. That's over three months. If you don't love it, they literally will pick it up for free and give you a full refund. I verify this information. To find, your for, to find your perfect sofa, go to allform.com slash be there in five. Allform is offering 20% off. You guys, 20% off a sofa. That's no joke. Allform is offering 20% off all orders for be there in five listeners at allform.com slash be there in five. Actually, I think we're about to get to this part. Amanda and I talk about this in the interview 
the importance of the nuances of mental health and receiving individualized licensed therapy instead of TikTok therapy. And uh, that is why I like working with BetterHelp, you know, not just self-help, but to be able to connect with a professional therapist. Uh, and in this context with BetterHelp, a safe and private online environment, you can start communicating in under 24 hours. They will assess your needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist. All without having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. Uh, they facilitate great therapeutic matches, but if it doesn't work out, you can uh, change counselors easily and and free of charge. And a big reason I work with them is because I know a lot of people aren't always in major metropolitan areas and might not be uh, have access to specialists and or it might be just difficult to get yourself there. And I think uh, virtual therapy is like a great uh, low stakes first step and uh, licensed professional counselors on BetterHelp are specialized in a variety of uh, different uh, mental health matters from depression, stress, anxiety to anger, family conflicts, relationships, uh, you know, grief, self-esteem, you name it. Anything you share is confidential, and this is, of course, not a crisis line, but so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by list, by visiting betterhelp.com slash be there in five. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be there in five. I would never. Um, no, I don't think, I think I was on the outskirts of hipster, but I was in groups that would undoubt as a collective we were hipsters for sure like did you were you annoyed by people that only liked top 40 music no uh, no but but i but all my friends were yes you you still had a you know a level of understanding oh, about you without being i've always been cold. a populist bitch i've been <laughs> interested in commercial success <laughs> That's awesome. I, I love thinking back on like peak hipster America where if just it's even just that that language of like everything needing to be like locally sourced, sustainable, farm to table, you know, bike riding, canvas tote carrying, uh, lumineers listening. Like it's just what a fun time in America. A lot of mustache couture. <laughs> yeah. No, that was even too mainstream for yeah. the group I was running in. I, it was a deep subculture. <laughs> I would love to. <laughs> I'll unpack that one day. I would love to unpack that canvas to it another day. Um, so the okay. So the third piece that you got to earlier was uh, how, in the coercion sense, it convinces people to act in ways that are completely in conflict with their former reality, ethics, and sense of self. Or as Tony Robbins says, you know, the only thing that's keeping you from getting what you want is the story you keep telling yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, this is the tricky part is that in all of this rhetoric, there is a nugget of truth. Like mm -hmm. self-talk can on some level control mm -hmm. outcomes or influence outcomes, sorry. Um, what they're saying is not 110% bullshit. And that's what makes it really tricky because again, your confirmation bias is going to do the work for them and tune into what you want to hear and tune out of what you don't want to hear. Um, these statements are like horoscopes. It's like you connect to it because it's so broad and so lofty. But in the context of Lularich and Lularo, we were talking about touching on this, I guess, earlier. But the coercion aspect comes in when all of a sudden, like, or not all of a sudden, slowly and gradually, <laughs> uh, this group has radicalized a bunch of people to become their own mini cult leaders. It's like, it's not just mm. Deanne and Mark doing that dirty work. Now it's the Lularo, um, 
what were they called? Distributors? Retailers. No, retailers. And of course, there's like retailer coach. There's like that hierarchy of emotionally charged titles that you're aspiring to that make you feel important, even though they don't really mean anything. But anyway, um, it's almost like Soul Cycle. It's like, yes, there's the cult of Soul Cycle, but really the mini cults surround the individual instructors and their own specific vibe and playlist and flavor. Um, so yeah, I mean, not everybody who enlists in LuLaRoe is gonna be down to play that game, but some will. And you could see it in some of the sources that were interviewed for Lula Rich. Like you could just see for whatever reason, like people's backgrounds, their personalities, the complex combination of factors that make us who we are. There are like some people who are just like more down to scam and like become their own mm -hmm. cult leader. And other people are like, eh, like a little more skittish about it. I mean, I interviewed a source for my book, um, a former high school classmate of mine who went and sold Optivia, which is a nutrition MLM, um, which is, oh my God, super predatory in terms of like diet culture and fat shaming in its own way. Um, but she knew it was a pyramid scheme. She was like, I'm down to scam. I was like, oh, oh. what? <laughs> okay. Well, uh, let's talk about that. Um, so yeah, that's what uh, LuLaRoe is breeding is this culture of, cult leadership. I mean, remember the gold watches the watch. that they would hand out? The little watches that were engraved with a phrase that said, be the type of leader you would follow? Oh my God. If that is not cult red flag number one, what is? Those watches were hysterical. I would love to find like whatever you know, generic promotional goods for corporate symposiums those were from. They like weren't, it's not like they were Rolexes. <laughs> It was just no. like it was just like a branded thing that was a status symbol to your point or like the the yeah. the words like saying, oh, if you were used in something promotional, you're Lula famous. Um, yeah. And then that compounded with that's an interesting point about like the mini cult leaders, because then what becomes addicting? What do they start to have via social media, their own individual platforms and congregations and Facebook Live is where Lula Row really exploded, and people probably got a lot. I kind of forget about that piece. It's like it's not just the financial element and the recruiting element. It's like people do get something out of them feeling important, right? Oh yeah, and this and the MLM industry is so nimble. Like you'd think by now, there is so much bad press. Right uh, out there about MLMs, like how do they continue to live on? Um, but they just keep rebranding. Like I didn't even realize until I started writing Cultish that Beauty Counter was an MLM, and like I owned Beauty Counter Brow Gel and really liked it, and thought the branding was like so chic. And I'm like, because the MLM industry just continues to like sniff out almost algorithmically like what the lowest common denominator of culture wants and the lowest dominant whoa that's another tongue <laughs> the lowest common denominator of culture during peak LuLaRoe wanted to be Facebook Live famous. Mm -hmm. And now like Young Living and all those essential oils MLMs prey on the sort of like wellness warrior micro influencer who wants uh to be a hashtag oily mama <laughs> is that what they call themselves face for the listeners <laughs> Oil. that's what young living that's what the young living former high school classmate that i 
follow, um, like rubbernecking, can't look away, uh, calls herself. She's a hashtag oily mama, which is the grossest term I've ever heard. (laughs) But it's a way to like obscure that she's a part of Young Living, which I think people know is an MLM. So you get people on board with this sort of evasive language. The MLM industry is just like so good at rebranding. One thing I wanted to ask you earlier about that that I, I get, I'm hung up on because I never so like you know with Keith Raniere um, and like Tony Robbins, like users of neurolinguistic programming, which I've talked about on the podcast before, or like a lot of the Nexium manipulation uh, that Keith kind of openly used was this uh, alternative usage of tenets of psychotherapy being used by a non-practitioner. So just as you can change somebody's mind for good to help them, you can also change somebody's mind to serve you. And what I remember reading a lot about was that uh, the the biggest way that people like change your mind, like slowly but surely, even if they don't have that power, or, like to kind of slowly do so, is that you know if you can't change the content of your life. They spend all of their time trying to get you to shift the context of your life. Like there are certain facts and circumstances, but the context is the way you hold those circumstances. And so one example would be, okay, you aren't selling anymore. You're underperforming. Uh, and you're saying, well, it's because my leggings are defective, have holes or are moldy. And then someone's saying, well, no, actually, you're not working hard enough. You're not positioning it the right way. You're not, you know, available on this, that and the other platform. Like there's just a constant, like constant slow spinning of everything that seems logical. And I think that's kind of to the third point about um, making people go against their own nature. It kind of does. It's 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 what kills me is like it's not dissimilar to like actual helpful psychotherapy but it's just reframing in a way that benefits somebody else and not actually you is that does that make sense what i'm saying totally <laughs> completely yes At, those are those thought terminating clichés that i was talking about you know my leggings are defective or like i have some you know, pushback I want to express or like, I want to scrutinize this and they'll hit you with this stock expression. Like, well, that's a victim mindset. Yeah. And you're like, oh, victim mindset shuts you up for a second. Yeah. So, um, yes, I have been thinking a lot lately ever since I finished cultish about, um, uh, therapy influencers Mm -hmm. and people who exploit the mental health crisis on social media who take very real problems like lack of access to therapy, um, you know, uh, the exploitation of the pharmaceutical industry, et cetera, and use those problems to fuel their own fame, their own clout, their own financial gain. It's like, yes, it is hard to find a therapist to pay for a therapist when they're hundreds of dollars an hour. Oh, yes, this, you know, perhaps even accredited Therapist is offering nuggets of wisdom on Instagram, but oh, they have a a healing seminar that you can sign up for and they have an exclusive Facebook group that you can join for a fee. Oh, they have these retreats. It all of a sudden starts to feel a little nexium-y. Um, and I've I've spoken to a number of psychologists about this. Like, how do we hold accredited and unaccredited? Uh, mental health influencers accountable because when even if you have a PhD 
and you're giving mental health advice online, you're not operating as a therapist, you're operating as an influencer. Um, so there's really no regulation there. But I was asking them, I was like, how, how do, what steps do we take to hold these people accountable? And the sources I was talking to were like, I don't know. Like, there aren't even really regulations that are all that intense for holding in-person therapists accountable. Yeah. Like, there are algorithms for how you can treat a broken bone or cancer or another type of, like, bodily ailment. And if someone fucks up, that's malpractice and they will be punished. But the algorithm isn't so precise for mental health. So you can't really get someone stripped of their license, or at least it's very, very difficult to just for giving you bad psychotherapy advice. That's hard in a one-on-one atmosphere where these two people have met face-to-face or like on Zoom or whatever and know each other. So it's near impossible online when someone has a parasocial relationship with a therapist or someone claiming to sort of be a therapist who has no idea who they are, who is indirectly responsible for perhaps hundreds, if not thousands of people going off their medication and signing up for this other person's circles and courses and yada, yada. Um, but, but it's really tricky because like everything they're saying is like, it, it, it could be seen as helpful. And maybe there are some people who do have a net positive experience and others don't. So this is like a whole other line of thinking, but I, uh, yeah, this has occupied a lot of my mental headspace lately. Like, where does th- there is just like is no line separating like what is one hundred percent helpful and what is one hundred percent hurtful. There's like this gray area, and ultimately the responsibility falls on us as consumers of this advice, products and services, whatever, to determine like how much power am I willing to give this person. Yeah, I think that's like what's so confusing about everything is like like there's a lot of nuance, a lot of gray, a lot of good that comes from things that can also be predatory that can exploit vulnerable people because at the end of the day like there's a problem so like like a solution is a good thing but not all solutions are created equal and that's the whole issue with like I'm I obsess with TikTok therapists because I'm like the entire point of like a, it's so hard to get people to even take their mental health seriously enough to go to therapy. And that's like half the battle. And I think a lot of like the Tony Robbins, Rachel Hollis types like garner these audiences or like the Washington Post said to goop for red states. It's like something spiritual and mental health adjacent and wellness adjacent that is a point of entry if you don't want to get legitimate medical care and take your mental health like seriously to that level. And then they're getting kind of like diluted one size fits all advice that could be detrimental. Then you actually are hearing from legitimate therapists on social media and they're talking about these big concepts that have like the thing with symptoms is that multiple things have the same symptoms. They just don't all have the same combination of symptoms. And mental health is yeah. completely individualized. But I get off TikTok being like, am, am I do, am I exhibiting disassociative behaviors? Do I have issues with object permanence? Like I'm diagnosing oh myself my constantly. And I'm the like- worst all of this psychobabble has. Like narcissist doesn't mean anything anymore. Gaslighting doesn't mean anything anymore. I mean, these things have like actual clinical, very specific definitions that have just been completely twisted. Um, Because, yeah, well, a lot of factors. I mean, a lot of factors contribute to the spike of cultish groups and gurus in general, the lack of trust in the institutions that are supposed to provide us with support, government, 
big, you know, company, well, companies, no, government, uh, you know, churches, the healthcare system, Americans in particular just feel so existentially unmoored that a lot of the, now a lot of people are just turning to freaking like TikTok authorities to tell them what to do because somehow they seem more trustworthy at this point. I mean, I don't blame people. Um, right. You know what I have found much better for my mental health than a TikTok therapist? I deleted TikTok from my phone uh, like three weeks ago you and did. I haven't thought about it once. Really? I haven't thought about it one time. On a, on a good day, I f- it, it's entertaining and it contributes. And it's, I find it so much better than like an Instagram that's so much more like self-promoting. TikTok's like sh- more sharing of content ideas and less about like, look at me. Except for like the New York influencers that like talk about the, what they ate that day. Those people drive me nuts. Um, but <laughs> the ones that said are like you. Oh, no. My, my For You page was literally like so wholesome. I don't think my For You page totally got me like <laughs> I mean it did it, it got my like most adorable side it was like, all like babies resin and art and like <laughs> yeah uh, I was literally about to say um and there was nothing like negatively affecting me about it necessarily other than it was a total time suck right and I was just like I, I at the risk of sounding like a woo-woo wellness warrior earth mama I was just like I need to return to like a more authentic authentic way of being on this planet. And I am going to read during the hours that I would be on TikTok. And I feel good about that. You know, I think that you're onto something there. That's a cult movement <laughs> you should start because I, I, read I encourage people to get lost in their for you page. Like it's a good book and more often than not, it is absolutely not. Um, okay. What I'm going to go through just, uh, I asked people on Instagram, like, what they wanted to make sure we covered, and I'm just going to scroll through it. Uh, but while I do that, like, is there – did we miss anything as – I mean, I know we missed a lot. There's so much here. But, like, um, you know, as it relates to, like, the cultiest components of Lula Rich that stuck out to you, like, what were the biggest watchouts or biggest things or even, like, more subtleties that people might not have caught that kind of really lend itself to, like, this is cultish? Yeah. I think just across the board with any group, the cult red flag is when things are being promised that are so lofty pertaining to transcendence, pertaining to way more than just the product or service, promises that cannot be fulfilled, and thus you will be bait and switched. Um, When a group is not being fully, fully transparent about what your membership will require, what it will take to get out. Um, These are also red flags. Uh, And just like MLMs across the board, I would, I mean, on my podcast, we talk about a different cultish group from the zeitgeist. Take a drink if you're playing that drinking game. Um, (laughs) Every, every week. And we discuss it. Um, Again, Kate was on our Tony Robbins episode to determine whether it's a live your life, a watch your back or a get the fuck out level cult. And I would say MLMs across the board are just a get the fuck out level. They check off all the criteria. So just like, don't just, just don't. <laughs> they, uh, this documentary did a brilliant job of showcasing how what starts as a casual, you know, buttery soft leggings venture becomes light, con- completely consumes your life and your family becomes wholly de- dependent. You've affected all of your relationships 
And to your point, these are the things that you have to get your finances, your family, your faith, the things that are most sacred to you involved so that it becomes impossible to leave. Yep. Just, you know, if it sounds too fucking good to be true, it It is. is. (laughs) Like, period. I mean, that sounds so cliche, but it's true. And that's hard to resist because we want things to be good. Of course. We want to think that other, I like, I think there comes a point where you just have to realize, like, you, your whole life, you kind of think, like, people know more than me. They know better than me. They have some secret I don't have. There is some formula that I simply do not know for one reason or the other. And it's all just like a performative pitch for people to think we're all doing so great when the, there's a, The human experience is a messy one. It's a chaotic one. And it's an imperfect one where a lot of people are doing a hell of a lot of guessing and delivering it to you in a very confident manner. Is the conclusion I've come to. (laughs) A thousand percent. You know, one of my favorite sources for my book was this woman, really bright, really funny, really self-aware, who survived Jonestown only to then join Synanon, the group my dad was in. So you think like this lady's a wackadoodle. But no, she was whip smart. I loved her. Um, and after her, not one, but two notorious cult experiences, she was finally like, okay, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not trying to do this anymore. So she found that the, the solution was not to put all of your eggs in one basket, to not put your entire faith, all of your stake into one group, but to become a member of like multiple cults. So she was like. Listen, if there were one group that could solve all my problems and give me everything I wanted, I would join it in a heartbeat. I'm a communalist. But instead, now I'm a Quaker and I'm an immigrants rights activist and I meditate with this group. And sometimes I get together with my old Synanon pals and we have dinner and we shoot the shit about old times. You know, it's like you want to sort of uh, diversify your social spiritual portfolio instead of, uh, you know, fully investing in one thing that might tank. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> Bed in a bag. Uh we want to source from different places. Uh, that was one thing I was going to ask you about that people, a lot of people said is like, okay, so you have this grand realization that you are in a culty MLM, then you join another MLM and like how common that is and how even the guy that got fired for banging ladies at the conference joined a Ponzi scheme. It's like, what it is, is there a, you know, connective tissue and like the type of person that's prone to fall victim to? Is there a level of damage done from the first one that you would think would make you more skeptical, but doesn't like you would just assume you'd be vigilant after being duped the first time. I don't want to victim blame at all. Like, I think there's, it just runs a lot deeper than our, your, my objective logic. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of things that social scientists have studied that make some people more vulnerable to fraud and scams than others. Um, You know, exposure to education and the scientific method tends to keep people safe. Um, Hilariously, being in a bad mood tends to protect people from fraud. (laughs) If you're feeling really optimistic and happy, someone could probably dupe you more easily. LOL. Um, if you're a curmudgeon, you're safe. You might die alone, but you'll be fine. Um, <laughs> if you're religious, you're prone see. to what believing else? impossible things. Yeah, exactly. Um, if you had your trust damaged uh, early in life, then that could mean that you won't put your trust in someone right. promising you a larger than life thing. Um, there are a lot of things that make someone more vulnerable to another, but 
it's not necessarily an issue of like gullibility because you can also look to people who go from one toxic relationship to another. I know a lot of really smart people who've done that. <laughs> you think it's like, why won't you learn? It's because right. some things just feel comfortable or you're not willing to give up on this promise. I mean, again, like these aren't rando bots on the internet that are making you these promises. These are like your closest friends and family. Um, it's so true. So it's, it's hard to resist, you know, for some people. That's so true. Um, people, a lot of people want to talk about the Tijuana of it all. Uh, I mean, that, that's a whole thing that's just like so deep and dark and, and troubling that I, from what I gathered, she, I don't know if she explicitly ever would say anywhere you should look like me, but kind of through example, you know, kind of would talk about looking your best, showing off all of your things, you know, whatever the hashtag was, uh, thanks to Lula Rowe or whatever people thanking everything in their life to Lula Rowe. It's like, to me, it was kind of a slow, but steady, uh, image building of like what the ideal Lula famous Lula consultant looked like. And then like people just kind of subtly under the radar at the top of the pyramid started to get this surgery and all like look the same way. Is that kind of what happened? It sounds to be, yeah, it's the slow conditioning process that we were talking about. You're not leading with go down to Tijuana. It comes up much later when you're already so far in. It's like, well, you might as well do this. Everybody else is. It's like what I was talking about earlier when my hair was beach blonde and my face was pumped with Botox and I had a spray tan and eyelash extensions, no shade to people who do any of those things, but they weren't authentic to me. They were because everybody else was doing it. And it was almost this... No, nobody told me I had to. Yeah, right. But it's a part of belonging. And, uh, you know, uh, th so many scholars, Brene Brown, everybody yes. says that the most important thing is belonging. You know, you said that on my podcast. Like, everybody knows that. And so um, it's, uh, it's, it's not mind-blowing to me that people would go that far um, because I, oh, gosh, do you ever watch those Netflix Explained episodes, yeah, yeah, yeah. that anthology series? I just watched the one on plastic surgery and it's fascinating to see um, the procedures that like were once considered just who would ever do that? Like right. mind bogglingly extreme that now are run of the mill like Botox or dyeing your hair or um, BBLs, which are I'm so dangerous. Yeah. So dangerous or like cool sculpting or whatever, especially the BBL thing. But I'm just thinking like, our culture in general conditions us to think that certain really extreme behaviors are normal. The MLM does it on a different scale, yeah. but it's not something that the average person can't on any level wrap their mind around. I mean, humans 500 years ago would probably think my eyeshadow right now was the product of brainwashing. <laughs> I need to take a screenshot of your eyeshadow. It's, it really looks great. <laughs> I've referenced it so many times just because it's like a lot. <laughs> I'll just screenshot the recording in the back. Um, no, I totally, I totally agree with you. And I, the other like just side question that I'm just like, if you're so rich, why Tijuana? <laughs> Can't you get that surgery in the States? <laughs> like there's, there had to be aren't something the weird about people, it. Aren't the richest people the cheapest? That's an interesting point too. I know. I was like, are they were they doing something illegal in America or just less expensive in America than America? And yeah, that was so terrifying. I don't know. I, during that part of the documentary, I distinctly remember I was refilling my drink. <laughs> so I was not paying attention to that 
as carefully as I was to everything else. People want to know, like, do you think that the people at the top who profited the most, even if they changed their mind at the last minute or are still vaguely involved, like who like who should be like held responsible for the perpetuating of the cultish language of manipulation? That's a tough one. I don't know. Uh, it's like I there's no answer. <laughs> Yeah, I remember I was asked to comment on Allison Max's oh, yeah. sentencing mm-hmm. um, for Nexium, and it's a sort of it's a sort of thing where it's like at the same time you can appreciate that she was under the incredibly coercive, abusive influence of Keith Raniere, and we can have empathy for her for that. But there are plenty of people who were in a very similar position to her who didn't do what she did. Right. So for that reason, we have to hold her accountable for her own actions. Nobody was literally holding a gun to her head. Um, right. So I, yeah, I mean, in terms of like. There's no, it's, I don't think it's gray. I, I don't think there's an easy way to hold people who succeeded in the business um, accountable. And, and I don't know that that would make sense because for a lot of reasons, they only succeeded because of luck, not necessarily because they set out to do something wrong. Like Alison Mack, when she was like for overseeing the branding of women and sex trafficking or whatever, like she set out to do something wrong. But how is that different? I don't know. Like, I think ugh, that the justice system really has tough. trouble trouble with this, too. Yeah, because the justice system is incentivized to keep all this kind of legal anyway. <laughs> it's like such a I've tried to like develop an opinion on this. And I'm like, I don't know. This is like a confusing mixture of uh, like people being genuine victims and criminals. And it's not clean. And um, yeah, I think that, you know, I think a lot. Of- I'm not I don't know. I personally this is not like a scholarly opinion. Personally, I don't think that people who were recruited to LuLaRoe and were retailers, coaches, got to the level, what was it, mentor Mm -hmm. at the top. I don't think they should be punished in a Or involved in the lawsuits. Like, was her name Caitlin? The woman that, like, at first I was like, I was thinking that she was very, you know, she was in on the expose, but then it's, you kind of realize, oh, she was like number three. She made so much money off this. She's not even willing to comment on how well she did. Exactly. And she seems to be still sitting in a closet full of merchandise. And so I, I didn't, I know I was, what was so, that? I had so many questions. I had so many questions. I don't know. Um, yeah, that was funny when all of a sudden she was answering questions with, I won't comment on that or whatever. I was like, what is your, what is your situation right now? Um, yeah, I wouldn't be, I don't think I would be for, I'm not one of those like burn them all down right. <laughs> type of people. So I'm sure she was responsible for some people's pain, maybe a lot of people's right. pain, but there are people who are like way more responsible. Yes. You know? Oh, f- uh, fully. Um, and a lot of like, I mean, everyone w- was like the bomb they dropped in the first 10 minutes that the adopted child was married to their biological child. I mean, I don't really have anything to say about that other than yikes. Oh my God. That's so like Woody allen Yeah. And they were like so proud of it. Very proud. It's so, it's so, you know what, you know what? It actually is very reflective of them because they are these like expansionists. They're like these greedy, 
expansionist, colonialist motherfuckers who wanted to keep their business in the family and clearly also wanted to keep their family in the family. So it makes a lot of sense (laughs) that they would want their kids to at least like emotionally inbreed. (laughs) That's like, I I know they just breeze past it. And that you're right. That's kind of like on brand with everything they're doing. It's like, it's just seems logically objectively wrong, but they have their own rationalizing of everything they're doing. And to this day, even they even agreed to do that documentary because they thought it was going to be probably about this. You know, they, if someone says, we're going to tell your story, they're like, Oh, you're going to tell our success story. Like, my redemption Look what we story. Built. Yeah. And they seemed like, I just can't even believe they fundamentally um, did it. Uh, a lot of people very, I mean, you know, God bless. What was his, the, you know, he can't listen to Kelly Clarkson's music anymore. <laughs> <laughs> devastating. Devastating. You know, devastating is one of those words that I can never spell right on the first try. I've, yes, I have a lot of those words. Recommendation, two C's or one. There's two M's. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the consonant combinations yes. always get you. For me, I always think it's D-E-V-E, but it's D-E-V-A, devastating. Yes, and in most cases, when you'd go to an ah, it's somebody misspelling it. <laughs> I'm trying to think of an example. Yeah, we just have a schwa. <laughs> we have a schwa problem in English. Too, too many schwas. What's the schwa problem? Oh, a, a schwa. Well, uh, schwa is an unstressed, like, non-vowel. Uh, you know, it's like, my name isn't Amanda. Oh, I wish you said it's it Amanda. that way. <laughs> Amanda. Well, you do say it that way in other languages, like Italian. Amanda. That's true. But, like, uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, on a schwa no, I, I, I love a linguistic tangent, and I'm just making sure we got the high points. Oh, his name was Daryl, not Derek. Um uh anyways yeah they didn't interview a lot of people at the bottom of the pyramid or people who's like i mean they a lot they interview people whose lives were destroyed i'd imagine that's more of a selection of who can like narrate and storytell who's been there the longest i don't know because i thought that was one of my problems with the docuseries as well like i if i had a criticism it would be like i want to hear more from people at the way way bottom who like lost everything they're like weren't any of those that's i think that's what's so interesting and and as a you know, you're a person that creates things. I am too. I always try to critique things from a lens of like, okay, I hate when people uh, don't let me accuse me of not being exhaustive when I'm trying to focus. Uh, And they Mm. were focusing on the build and the rise and exponential growth, but they didn't focus enough on the detriment. And I think that those, those stories are perhaps some of the most important to highlight in terms of who this, you know, who this is predatory to and who suffers from it. And, even though, like, my impression, I don't know this data-wise, is that it's a largely uh, white audience, there's, you know, how did this disproportionately affect people of color, people in different socioeconomic situations, people in situations of poverty? Like, that we, we heard from people, wondering what this looked like for people that this genuinely put them in a situation of, of true financial ruin. I think that's, like well, because the, I mean, this is my problem with, like, all types of cult documentaries they like all follow the exact same journey where it's like very sensational in a way very like glamorous you you build up this like huge success story and then there's a very abrupt fall from grace Mm. um and the yeah like the structure storytelling wise is often the same and 
I mean, I don't know. I just, I obviously have watched so much cult content at this point that I have like a very picky about it. But I just think there's like an even more um, like accurate way of telling the story if you get to the real human level mm-hmm. and instead of like so many montages of ugly leggings, like because that just creates this us them dichotomy between the viewer and the recruit. It's like, oh God, those leggings are hideous. These people are crazy, you know? Right. I'm just like, well, actually, they're not. And then you're left with all these questions that we're now attempting to answer in this interview. But I guess the cult documentary should continue leaving things out so that we can have a job. <laughs> you're absolutely right. It, it's like uh, you just said something that I lost, but. Um, like, oh, these people are crazy. Like, actually, we're not. Like, yeah, like, let's let's explore that angle and arc of actually we're not and how this is a slippery slope and not what it looks like macro, but like person by person. Like, yeah, no one joins a cult. No one wanted this for their life. Uh, but it just becomes a spectacle of women dancing to Katy Perry's roar and power clashing. <laughs> um, but anyways, I will. It is the ultimate power. Anyway, you're brilliant. Totally. I love talking to you about all of this. Um, if Where can people oh find gosh, you, repeat all of your things, and promote the hell out of your brilliant work? Thank you. Wow, that's really kind. If you would like to become one of my followers... <laughs> uh, you can find me on Instagram at Amanda underscore Montel, where I ambivalently post fun, culty things. Um, my podcast is Sounds Like a Cult. Um, be sure to listen to Kate's episode. It's great. And um, please buy my book, Cultish, The Language of Fanaticism, available in hardback, audiobook, ebook, wherever books are sold. Do you narrate the audiobook? devastatingly spelled with an EBA. <laughs> I do not. I was supposed to, but I couldn't because of the pandemic. I did narrate my first book. Oh, cool. Um, so that's Word Slut, also available wherever you buy books. Um, I love narrating my own books. I will be definitely narrating my next one, but I wasn't able to for Cultish. And yet the, I hear, I mean, the, the audiobook actor did a great job. Oh, cool. Um, so it's still really enjoyable, even though it's not. Not me, but you can hear my voice uh, uh, to your heart's content on the podcast. <laughs> the podcast which season two is coming soon. Do you know when it's coming? Oh, um, exclusive. It's coming December 7th. That's a scoop. Oh, exciting. <laughs> you heard it here first. Awesome. Well, Amanda, you're a delight. And it was so much fun to have you on. And uh, I'm sure something else will come up in the media or, or in pop culture, the zeitgeist, if you will, that we'll need to dissect any day now. So come back soon. Oh, what right. Thank you so much for listening, guys. Wow, letting you go like 15 minutes early. How breezy am I? Giving you your day back up. <laughs> I uh, will ca- I'll catch you next week. I'm headed to a dear friend's wedding this weekend. I'm so excited. Except Rent the Runway didn't. They, they lost my dress. And like the only option, I mean, you guys, that was actually part of the whole bra debacle is that I just can't. Things are just so cleavagey unless I'm wearing like a turtleneck, which I normally do love. I love a, a grunge keynote moment with distressed denim and a black turtleneck. The distressing of the jeans is the only way people don't mistake me for Elizabeth Holmes. I don't have a choice. But, uh, you know, like even a light V-neck, I don't know, just can be so boobtastic. Like I just, I, 
texted my friend and I was like, I apologize in advance for the boo buffet. Like, I don't, like, I don't know if, if your wedding's like Renaissance fair themed, but, um, I don't, I, I just don't have a choice. And, um, I don't, it was kind of, I mean, she's the best. And she was like, why are you apologizing me for like, to, to me about how like your body is shaped and how a dress will fit? Like, why would I care? I was like, I don't know. See, that's, that's, you're right. Like you would be terrible if you did care or you assumed that I was, you know, gunning for the attention. It really makes me think of all the times I've unfairly judged people probably for what they were wearing or how they were dressed. And, you know, if somebody knew that the reason my tees were out is something I like deeply resented, that was kind of tough for me. Like I would hope they wouldn't think that I was just there to, you know, ask their husbands which arm was tanner if they wanted to see me touch my elbows behind my back. <laughs> anyway, you guys, thank you for spending so much time with me talking about this. Um, I had a great time and my sister's going to bring me some of her buttery soft leggings at the DC show. She apparently has like a bit of a unicorn pair. It's a it's a green chevron with Santa coming out of one of her butt cheeks and his hand is vaguely in the crack and she didn't notice until she took him out and listened to the episode that they are indeed holy. I, I want to stick one hand in a bin of like margarine and one hand on a legging and I want to be I want to tell you firsthand if the they are if this is butter because I just I, when I think of buttery soft I think of uh, twin XL jersey cotton sheets mostly for dorm rooms which i do you know wish were more accessible for adult king beds um or i think of like how people describe botoxy foreheads <laughs> can't wait to feel the leggings but if you want to come see me in dc be there on five live at the howard theater uh october 16th in salt lake city uh october 28th then we have san diego at house of blues like sunday fun boozy brunch day parties so people can come down from la or oc uh, on Sunday, November 7th, my sister will be there. Uh, Friends of the Pod, Nora McInerney and Laura Tremay might just be there. Uh, get tickets while you can. Three of the dates, Boston, Atlanta, and Seattle, are now sold out. But San Diego, Salt Lake, and D.C. have some left. You can see all that on BeThereIn5.com. Just click on the banner for live shows or the menu. Would love to see you. It's like just an hour of me talking and going through my theories visually. And then we dance to Taylor Swift music for three hours. And people in the community can get to know each other in a fully vaccinated environment. Uh, so I'm very excited for that coming up. And, uh, if you could rate and review five stars, I would love you forever. Truly it makes all the difference. That's the only way people like chart or go anywhere in this life. And it doesn't take that long. And it, uh, if, I don't know, it matters. So if you, if, as desperate as this sounds, I would love that. Um, or like, yeah, if you want to share with a friend or in your Instagram story, DM me and screenshot if you're private, uh, I would be so grateful. You guys always are doing the nicest things and promoting me, and I don't need, I don't need to ask you for more. Uh, but just in case you feel so inclined, and I hope you have a great week. I'll see you next week. I, uh, coming soon, I need to do a Kate Lila where I pretend to be Delilah, the soothing radio host, and answer your questions or give advice or whatever. Those are my personal favorite episodes to do. I don't know if people like listening to them, but the number, I'll put it in the show notes. It's also on the website. It's 312-379-9676, 312-379-9676. If you want to be on the next Be There and Buy podcast episode and hear my thoughts. And I, I love quirky, weird pop culture questions that are hyper-specific. I love hearing your hopes, dreams, fears, regrets, life issues, uh, whatever you need. Um, and other than that... I'm headed to a wedding this week. Uh, sorry, no. My boobs are headed to a wedding this week. I am just their side character. They are the main event. I may be a podcast herb by trade, but my second interest in this life is making our Christian brothers stumble. So wish me luck. <laughs> Anyways, guys, have a great weekend.
Love you so much. Thank you for your engagement and continued interest. And I hope you'll come back next week. And as always, let me know your thoughts and I will let you know mine. I'll be there in five. I swear.